1: Rippy writes with Brian Scott Rippey Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon ramming your head through some drywall and then writing down every thought you have
0: what's up on a Wednesday I'm Brian Scott Rippy. thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy writes podcast first show of the week really got nothing for you outside of uh, I had a couple ideas in place they both kind of fell through and I was like I'll just kick it to uh to Wednesday but we have a great show for you today we have Uh, Some basketball thoughts in the open off the top, and then I actually talked to Ole Miss alum and Navy fighter pilot, John Haslett. He flies 18G Growler fighter jets for the United States Navy. He is a VAC 140 in the United States Navy, which is some fancy term for an even fancier term called an electronic attack squadron. So really interesting guy, really interesting story. He, uh, he basically uh, dis, uh, basically blocks enemy missiles and their radar detection systems to allow United States planes to drop bombs on enemies. So uh, I actually saw him at a bar over Christmas break, explained to him what he did. Uh, I'll let you decide which one of us had the more interesting job. And I was like, would you like to do this uh, with the microphone in front of you? So <laughs> we made it happen. I figured it was a perfect time, a little bit low with just basketball going on. Uh, in terms of the Ole Miss sporting calendar, but I think you'll really enjoy it. We talk normal guy stuff, like dropping bombs on uh, foreign enemies and breaking the speed of sound, so just your typical guy shit, yucking it up. I think people will enjoy this podcast, so buckle up. Great conversation there. Uh, before we get to that, I want to remind you, the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website, the – world's best gambling handicapping website. I'll tell you why I said that twice in a second. The inventors of the Skybox Matrix interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Skybox this week went And I'm talking to the tune of 56 units on Saturday and Sunday. They went 23-10-1 and plus 48 units on Saturday in college basketball alone and followed it up with a 4-0 day plus plus 8-unit sweep on Sunday. I don't know what you're doing not using these guys if you're in the sports handicapping industry. You're probably licking your wounds as you get into the midweek, eyeing the board for the weekend, whether that's NFL football, NCAA basketball, trying to make back what you lost. You could already be rich if you're using Skybox. You have a pick package to fit your price range, whether that's month long, season long, I'd recommend just going with the all year long, how you probably just paid for it in one weekend uh, with, with the way Skybox had. But if you want something a little uh, little more fitting in your price range, it's your preferred sport, they're going to have it. Just check out their picks, picks packages at skyboxsportspicks.com. Again, plus 56 units in a weekend. I'm not really sure what else you could ask for. Just an absolutely historic day for Skybox. Congrats to those guys over there for crushing it. You need to join them. Hopefully most of you already have and you're trying to figure out what you're going to spend your money on as as opposed to how you're going to recoup it uh, after last weekend. So check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Giving out daily free plays in college basketball. Just check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com slash free play, and you get it for free. Then go buy a picks package and get rich. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com podcast also brought to you by lb's university avenue across from kroger you know the drill go see greg if you're a rippy right subscriber that's rippy you get a freeze newsletter from me three to five times a week plus discounted meats right now it's a 16 ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a five dollar pack of sausage just roll in there show greg proof of subscription and uh, he will give you your deal then go find your own favorites all kinds of great stuff. Bacon-wrapped fillets, ribeye sausages, crab stuff, mushrooms. It is absolutely the best place in Mississippi to get meat. The seafood's awesome. I love the ribeye burgers. It is uh, really just a crown jewel of Mississippi, and Oxford is very, very lucky to have it. Check him out. LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. All right. Before we get to John Hazard, I had a couple hoops thoughts off the top. We're going to reconvene with Bracken on Sunday. He had a, uh, he had a function on Saturday night, wanted to catch up and watch the state game and push to later in the week. I had him scheduled for this past Sunday. We're going to get back to a normal schedule with that on this Sunday night after Ole Miss's game against Auburn on Saturday. But uh, as the AM game approached and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do for a Monday podcast, I just figured, you know what, I'll kind of watch one more game, see how the Rebels feel on the road. We'll do some solo basketball thoughts and then add this to the John Hazlitt pod. So that's kind of uh, some inside baseball on that. Ole Miss lost 67-51 to last night to texas a&m to fall to one and two in conference play this team is already kind of behind the eight ball with the way they finished the non-conference schedule uh, with the loss to sanford Uh, really the only quality win in there's memphis and you're kind of wondering how quality that's going to be so they needed to get off to a good start in conference play or at least a decent one with how tough their schedule is and last night felt like an important game because they come off the win on saturday night where they take advantage of matthew morrell just absolutely going off right he goes 10 of 11 from the field 31 points they scored 50 and a half and beat Mississippi State 82 to 72 so they get to one and one that was a big win now it's an opportunity to go on the road last night AM was 13 to 2 I think they're a good team I think that's a uh, borderline tournament team that maybe hasn't necessarily gotten to prove that yet given what they played in the non-conference schedule but be that as it may in terms of road games in this league this year that's about as winnable as you're going to get outside of playing you know a Missouri or a Georgia because even Vanderbilt looks like they're a pretty good team. They went on the road and beat Arkansas last week. So it was a winnable game. And with Ole Miss having Auburn home on Saturday, followed by hosting a bad Missouri team and then another road trip to state and a home game at Florida. And the reason I just outlined those four in a row, those feel winnable-ish. You felt like this was an important chance to get to two and two and – or excuse me, get to two and one. You're probably not beating Auburn. I don't know if you guys saw them play Alabama last night. Auburn is – Auburn, Baylor, and I don't even really know who else at this point. There's two teams that look like they're for sure final four teams. Obviously, hard to get to the final four. Not every final four looking team will get to it, but those look like two of the surefire team, best teams in the country. Auburn wins on the road to Alabama last night. Point being, Ole Miss is not going to win on Saturday. I'll probably break some news there. Auburn's really good. So last night felt like an important opportunity to not fall one and three. And if you can get out of this week at two and two, you got another home game. You know, tough road trip at State. I still think State's a pretty good team. Then two more home games to kind of uh, kind of give yourself some leeway before the schedule gets uh, tougher toward the back half with some road games, even though there's, you know, South Carolina and Georgia on that end as well. But it felt important last night, and Ole Miss lost by 16 points in a game that really wasn't that uneven in other areas of the stat sheet. And I think that's kind of indicative of what this team is and why they're going to struggle. There was no Jarko Joiner last night. It was announced, I guess, on the broadcast. I thought that was already somewhat known, but it was that he's going to miss at least six weeks with a lingering back injury. He did not make the trip to College Station last night. He played like six minutes in the win over Mississippi State. Don't even think he had a shot attempt. So it wasn't much of a factor in that. He's going to be on the shelf for a little bit, it sounds like. And that's tough for a team that's already offensive challenged. And I know, you know one of the reasons they were offensively challenged is because they weren't getting at least all of what they thought they might could from Joiner. But be that as it may, he was still their leading scorer. So you lose a leading scorer on a team that already struggles to score the basketball, it's going to be tough. But should it look this tough? And I think that's really the question to ask with regard to this Ole Miss basketball team. Why does it look this tough? Any team's going to look flawed without their leading scorer. But, man, like, does it look that tough? Did it look that tough for Mississippi State to score the ball without Tulu Smith? No. And I guess that's a bad example to use because of Matthew Morrell's game. But I think there's way more – sample size to suggest Ole Miss is much more of the team they were Tuesday night offensively than they were on Saturday night. Don't really think that's going out too far on the limb given they had a guy go 10 for his first 10 and 10 of 11 and I believe Ole Miss was like 10 of 15 as a team from three-point range on Saturday night uh, for a team that really had not shot the ball well from three up until that point. So anyway, why does it look this tough? There's talented guys on the floor. You know, you get a fallback from Duke and Jamie and Brakefield. I don't know exactly what he can provide them offensively, but it's certainly not enough. Matthew Morrell couldn't really pull together a back-to-back performance like that. Wasn't very efficient last night. And then really kind of the most consistent offensive option they have is Deshaun Ruffin getting in the lane and creating. But he was 3-10 last night, 1-4 of four from three-point range, gets to the lawn, makes all three of his free throws. But, like, that seemed to be the most consistent offense they had. And it just looks brutal. Like, they, I mean, the Morrell led them with 11 points last night, four of eight shooting, goes two of four from the free throw line in 27 minutes. Then you got Ruffin with 10. um, Nice here. Brooks, four of seven, you know, didn't have as much of an impact on the glass as he did in the win over Mississippi State. And then Breakfield gives them nine. But I was watching that game last night, and it wasn't like they were not being able to get shots. Like, at times, I think they've struggled with shot creation, but I think there's a distinction between shot creation and, you know, bucket getters and bucket makers. Because Ole Miss has been able to create shots in the half-court offense. Just when half-court offense breaks down, they don't necessarily have a guy that can go, like, create his own shot and get, you know, manufacture a basket when something's not necessarily open. Last night when Ole Miss was getting to the ball in the middle of the floor, particularly kind of upright around the free-throw line area, kind of a free-throw line extended, like they got some open looks in the perimeter, particularly kind of sliding down. They had a couple open corner three-point shooters And they just didn't make the shots. And I know that sounds simplistic, but they just don't have enough dudes that can put the ball inside the cylinder. And I think that was readily on display last night. They went 18 of 52 from the field, five of 22 from three point range. And you're sitting there thinking on the surface, if you have a percentage like that, what are you doing taking almost half of your shots from three point range? But if you go back and watch that game last night, I don't think very many of them were unjustified. Ruffin had a couple bad ones early in the shot clock, but they were open shots that at least either was kind of at least a good decision in transition or part of the flow of Ole misses half-court offense. They literally just were not going down. And I think that's indicative of this team. What were we talking about going into the year? Are you worried about them not having enough perimeter shooting and enough you know, shot creators and guys when the, you know, the play breaks down and you got eight seconds left on a shot clock? Who can you give the basketball to to create something on his own? They don't really have that. You know, it seems like Ruffin does it in spots, but, you know, he's a five-nine freshman who missed most of non-conference play with a wrist injury. That's a tall task for anybody, even a McDonald's All-American. And, you know, what's the result when you don't have guys making open shots? The result is losing by 16 in a game which the opponent didn't get to 70. It's just not a great offensive product. And it ultimately falls back on the people responsible for – creating this roster and that would be Kermit Davis and this staff they don't have enough offensive playmakers on this even with Jarkel Joyner it was not a good offensive product I think we can probably all agree on that they had moments with Joyner out on the floor hell they had a moment without him on Saturday but if you only hope to getting to 75 to 80 points or hell in this case 65 is a guy going 10 of 11 from the field and perfect from the three-point line you're not going to win very many basketball games because you can't can't simply score enough. Texas A&M last night, and that's the weird part about this team, they're not perfect defensively by any means. Some really really tough offensive stretches. They still defend with effort, and I know Kermit Davis had some post game quotes last night about this team being soft and him not liking the energy last night. They still, I thought they still defended fine for the most part. Again, it wasn't perfect. A and M got into the lane and got easy baskets around the rim too much. They finished with 42 paint points, and I would argue if those were all, you know, if you made what that's, uh, 20, basically 21, you know paint points or 21 paint made shots you know odd 17 18 of those that's probably a little high 15 ish we're all far too easy so they're not perfect defensively but they had nine steals last night they turned A&M over 13 times they only committed 13 turnovers of their own like that's good enough to win a game on the road again A&M was averaging 83 points a game going into that game last night and struggled a bit even with what they were getting around the rim to get to 67 and so even if Kermit could say all he wants, and I don't, he knows this team better than I am but, than I do uh, that he didn't like the effort and the intensity last night. But more times than not, that shows up in defense, and they at least gave enough effort to be competitive defensively. Again, there were lapses; they got around the A and M got around the rim entirely too much. But I thought the effort was there, and they were you know, sound in most possessions. But they're so bad on offense, they're Margin for error is so small, even when they're defending well for long stretches, sometimes they still don't make up any grounds. People talk about basketball being a game of runs, and that's a pretty, pretty general blanket term, almost to the point of being a cliche, but it fits in some ways. If you strain together three or four stops in a row and you cannot get a basket on the other end, that's a lot of energy expended for no result. And I think the prime example of something like that is last night, early in the second half. So, Ole Miss is down four at halftime. They actually closed the half pretty well to cut it to four from seven to four. I think they even got it to two, but they're down four at halftime. And then they fall down 39 to 30. And you're thinking, okay, this is the run that kind of breaks them because you know that team being down nine points is really feels like 18, does it? not? Maybe not quite that much, but pretty close. They go on a 7-0 spurt to cut it to 39-37. You had a little – a hook jumper uh that came off of a turnover you had a Luis Rodriguez dunk off a steal in transition and then you had a Matthew Morrell three that came off of a turnover so all three all three of those baskets all seven of those points by my count came off turnovers they didn't score again aside from one Morrell free throw for six minutes or five minutes and 40 seconds so you had that run and you get it back to two and then you don't have another field goal for almost six minutes and they're not defending bad, but by the time that field goal comes over six, you know, over six minutes, you're down 13 at that point. You're down 15 until Morel makes the jumper. And that to me is why this team is really, really going to struggle. And I know I'm not breaking any news there, but you, you even without your leading scorer, you, you cannot be that inept offensively. There cannot be that much of a drop-off to your second option. And again, I didn't even think, and this is an untrained eye here, it was bad offense. I thought at times they moved the ball well and created particularly open perimeter shots. I didn't think they were great in the paint last night. Brooks had some moments, but they created open perimeter shots, hence the 22 three-point attempts. They literally just can't make them. And I don't really know what you do about that at a certain point, because I imagine those 22 attempts were also a product of how they were being defended. I couldn't exactly pick up what a and was doing. It seemed like a decent bit of man. But I imagine that was probably in part of the scouting report in terms of you know what you're guarding against versus what you're willing to allow. Because, again, it goes back to, well, why are you taking that many three-point shots? Because they were there, and Ole Miss just couldn't put them in. And to put the, kind of encapsulate this and put it in perspective, Ole Miss was in this game last night. They were on the – if you just look at it from a simple stat sheet perspective, A&M shot 56% from the field. That's not good. That's a recipe for a loss on the surface. And But a lot of that was because how many points they got around the rim, how many points they got in the paint. We outlined that. But they only went five of 18 from three, 28%. They only shot seven free throws. So they got to the line, what, four times? Even in the turnover battle, Ole Miss lost by three on the glass, but I didn't think there was some gigantic – disadvantage on the glass Ole Miss actually got three more offensive rebounds than Texas A&M did second chance points eight to three and you were pretty even in the amount of points you got in transition and Ole Miss had 10 steals to A&M's nine assist to made baskets I think a lot of that comes from Ole Miss having defensive lapses around the rim but you're pretty equal on in every other part of the stat sheet except for you know putting the ball on the rim Ole Miss led for two minutes of that game A&M led for 35 minutes and 36 seconds and so You're sitting there thinking and you're looking up and down the stat comparison. you're like, how is this a 16-point game? Ole Miss held this team 15 or 16 points under its season average and the game wasn't even close for the last 10 minutes and it comes down to just not having enough shot makers and shot creators in half-court offense. Last night with the three-minute mark, right after the under four timeout, I want to make sure I have this correctly as I look this up live, at the under four timeout. 349 Ole Miss had or excuse me under five minute mark, so right before the timeout Ty Fagan made a jumper with four minutes and 41 seconds left to get it to 45 60 to 45 before that point so four minutes and 42 seconds left Ole Miss had 14 points in that half and I believe seven of them we're not off turnovers. So you had seven offensive points in 16 minutes of basketball that didn't stem from your defense creating offense for you. That's a really, really tough stretch to overcome. I'll just go ahead and say it. It's impossible to overcome. And it's just remarkable looking into some of these numbers on a nightly basis about how inept they are offensively. And I think that speaks to a bigger picture, not only for this year, because this year is going to be a struggle, particularly if joiners out six weeks. I mean, that. At that point, you're getting close to being out for the year. And is it better to just, you know, let him sit out and use the COVID thing? I don't really know how all that works. I'll dive into that later. But point being, you're going to be out without your leading scorer for an extended period of time for a team that already struggles. So it's not going to get any better. But if you look at this from a big-picture program standpoint, it, Kermit Davis hasn't recruited any bucket-getters, like, period. Think about the NCAA tournament team. That's Brian Tyree, that is Terrence Davis, an NBA player, and a young Devontae Shuler who was really, really valuable that you're moving to point guard allowing Brian to play off the ball. The next year, wasn't a great team. They weren't great defensively. I think that was maybe Kermit's most frustrating team, although this one might take the cake because of how they weren't great defensively. But, boy, they could have had a guy that could fill it up every night and Brian Tyree in his senior year. Remember that home game against State where he went off? That's about as impressive as an individual performance. I've seen by someone in an Ole Miss uniform – in person in quite a long time, but then all theirs are gone. You lose Shuler. I guess you lost Shuler last year, but you lost Tyree and Terrence Davis. And since then, you haven't anybody can score. Louis can score last year was Devonte Shuler and he wasn't a Kermit Davis recruit. So who is Kermit Davis brought in, that can score the basketball. And, you know, you got to give him a little bit of credit through Romella white. I I think he in a normal non COVID year, I think he would have been remembered more fondly, even though he was only here for a year, but it's really tough to play offense in this modern day and age of basketball through a center in the front course, unless that guy's really dominant and Romella white was really good. He was a lot of fun to watch. He was really skilled and he was a smart basketball player, but I wouldn't necessarily call him dominant. And so, particularly as it pertains to the backcourt, they haven't had any guards come into the program that can score. And that's led to their demise each of the last two seasons. And you could see the seeds of it three years ago because there wasn't a secondary scorer to Brian Tyree. You know, he could go for 35 and Ole Miss could lose because you couldn't have the second option that was, you know, worth enough to overcome it. And that team wasn't great defensively. The last two teams have been much better than that two team, those two teams defensively. But What are you when you're pretty good defensively, but inept offensively? You're a bad team with the real smallest margin for error. And so I think last night was sort of a microcosm of this season, in a sense, probably foreshadowing what's to come. And really a microcosm of Kermit Davis's program post ak holdovers and i think that's a problem and i'm not sure how long you know you give the guy to figure it out but man he's got to go find someone that can put the ball on the rim more specifically he's got to go find a guard that can put the ball on the rim on a consistent basis because that's what this program is so sore, lack sorely lacking and you know jarkel joiner was about as close to a guy that he's brought in but would you say i mean at best even if he's healthy The jury's still out on him being a, you know, plus SEC scorer. I think he's a decent scorer, but he struggles to beat guys off the dribble. He's been very good in spot-up shooting situations. And, yes, you can make the argument you didn't get to see enough time with him and Ruffin together. I would have been interested to see both of them healthy for six, seven games of SEC play with Ruffin playing point guard essentially and Joyner playing off the ball and see what that looks like because Ruffin's a really good creator and he's a strong finisher – for his size. I would be curious to what that looked like. So there is some benefit of the doubt given, but man, you lose one guy and it looks this inept offensively after not looking great. When that guy that's supposed to be your guy is even is, is on the floor. That's just not going to cut it. And I'm curious to see what he does to figure it out because as it stands right now, this is going to be a long season. And it's interesting because they have, talented pieces morell was a really highly recruited kid I think he was the most highly rated kid when they signed him in program history Jamie and Brakefield, you didn't get to really see what he was going to be offensively at Duke but you haven't really seen it here that's Brooks I would argue is offered a little more offensively in spurts than I thought he would give Ole Miss granted I didn't know a lot about him but you know it's tough to ask Ruffin morell hasn't made the jump I don't really know what Austin Crowley's deal is and I didn't know what to make of the Ty Fagan thing but he's obviously not going to be a consistent contributor on the offensive end and Luis Rodriguez is kind of you knew you knew what he is and so there's pieces there but all of those guys lack a consistent scoring consistent shot creation aspect to their games and you just got a bunch of dudes that can defend well and make plays in transition but that's not going to be enough to win games in this SEC so Anyway, those are some basketball thoughts I had at the top. Um, Before we get to John Haslett, the only other thing I wanted to get to: Ole Miss lost another staffer on Tuesday. Kevin Smith, uh, rivals Rebel Grove, Neil Chase reported that he is going to join Mario Cristobal's staff at Miami, which is just the latest in a you know slew of defections when it comes to the coaching staff. I think most people expected the roster turnover that Ole Miss has had, but the coaching staff turnover. Is probably what's jarring people the most. Some of that was going to be natural, right? I don't think anyone expected Jeff Lebby to be at Ole Miss in 2022. Uh, I didn't really know about Durkin. You know, he seemed to pick up steam in the second half of the year, but all that all that happened so fast. I never really thought about him and his stock as you know being having options to go elsewhere. So that one was a little bit of a surprise, but explainable. You know, Wilson Love going to Oregon, surprising but explainable. But like the loss of Kevin Smith, that's a tough one. And yeah, he's. Florida guy like going around you know closer down to South Florida I get it but that's a tough loss and you just wonder you know how many of these Ole Miss can withstand before it becomes indicative or that's probably not the right way to say it. you wonder how many of these are indicative of something larger versus natural staff turnover and I think the coordinators leaving particularly Levy, largely explainable makes sense but a couple of these other ones might be indicative of something else I'm not necessarily sure what that is but um, that's a tough loss for Ole Miss. You know, losing Marquise Watson and not how him not getting I don't know if he didn't get an on field opportunity at Ole Miss, but him taking an on field opportunity elsewhere as opposed to Ole Miss, particularly after Durkin after Durkin left, surprising. Losing Kevin Smith, surprising. Those are two pretty big recruiting losses, right? I mean, Judd Quinchun Judkins uh Kevin Smith played a pretty big role in that. Henry Parrish played a huge role in that. I don't think he was in as much as the on the Zach Evans thing, or at least not the way it sounded, but you know, he's a good recruiter and he's brought good offensive pieces to Ole Miss and it's a big loss and I'm curious to see how Ole Miss replaces them. But, um, you know, I think I kind of fall somewhere in the middle between the skies falling lanes hard to work for and can't keep assistance to and the other side of it just being natural turnover and everything's fine. There's probably a little bit of truth in both of those things because I think even the most optimistic person would probably admit Ole Miss has had more coaching staff turnover than is normal even after a 10-2 and two season or a 10-3 season, excuse me. And just – it's going to be tough to replace all of them. Lane's got a pretty good batting average when it comes to replacing assistants. But, you know, the more a plate appearance is natural, your batting average is going to go down unless you're really elite, uh, to use a very simplistic baseball reference. And we'll see if he's elite when it comes to hiring guys. Good track record so far, but can he sustain it? Because, you know, having to make that many hires in an offseason, in an off-season is no – easy task. So, wanted to hit on a couple of topics there. Let's get to John Haslett, United States Navy fighter pilot. I asked him a bunch of questions, some really dumb, some I thought were okay, but I think you'll learn a lot and enjoy this conversation. Interesting fellow. All right, we now welcome on John Haslett, Ole Miss alum. He is a VAQ 140 in the United States Navy, which is a fancy term for uh, electronic, electronic attack squadron, which i say is another fancy term. You're basically the most accomplished person to ever come on this podcast. That's a low bar, but uh, I led with Old Missile on first because we do have a pretty Old Miss Listener, heavy listenership. But uh, you are a pilot in the US Navy. Um, we talked about coming on. This started over a conversation uh, at a bar over, I think, like Thanksgiving break or something, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe it's just no, it's December, Christmas break, and I was like, I think I just asked you like what you did, and then you explained it, and I was like, well, shit, that sounds cool. But uh, I appreciate you have uh, you coming on, dude.
1: Absolutely, dude. Thanks for having me on. It's fun to be here. Yeah, it's been a while since we'd seen each other. It was fun uh, running into each other at the bar over Christmas.
0: Absolutely. You got the uh, powder blue old Miss hat on, repping it during the Zoom here, which I imagine most of our listeners will uh, love to hear. It, I knew generally what you did like gen- like, very generally and like when I asked I kind of wanted to just learn a little bit more about it and then I was just kind of enthralled by the entire thing so for the average person that doesn't really understand you do what
1: uh so for anyone who's seen uh behind enemy lines with Owen Wilson where uh he's on the ground trying to not get captured by the Serbs so his plane got shot down by surface-to-air missile Uh, So our plane is a modified F-18 that has hardware to detect those uh, surface-to-air missiles. And then the radars that they use to uh, shoot us down, we have pods that will jam those radars. Uh, So basically just protecting all of our friendly forces that are uh, going out there looking to strike those SAMs or do whatever harm we mean to our enemies. We'll uh, protect them from getting shot down while they're on the way in.
0: How does someone get into something like that? Because, like, I I imagine the average person, like, when I first thought of it, I just assumed that's, like, something you would have to go to one of the service academies for and kind of spend, like, a lifetime training for. You were at Ole Miss. You're a little bit older than me, but we were there around the same time, like, only, like, a year or two. But, like, you had a pretty normal college career, it seems like, unless I'm missing something big in the backstory here. How did you get into this?
1: Uh, My college career was exceptionally average, not much more than that. (laughs) Uh, so the three ways, like you said, the service Academy is one way. Um, ROTC is the other way, or what I did is OCS officer candidate school. That's the third way. Uh, so those are the three ways you can get a commission, uh, which you have to do if you want to go to pilot training in uh, the Navy. Uh, and then following that you head off to flight school. Uh, so like service Academy, everyone knows ROTC. Most people know OCS is, uh, basically just a three month course that you go to. Uh, so the summer before my senior year, started applying to Navy pilot training the summer after I graduated. So that next summer I finally got accepted, Uh, headed up to Newport, Rhode Island, and then uh, started officer candidate school. Um, So that was how I did it. Uh, But I, I mean, my dad was an Air Force pilot. He flew F-4s and F-16s. Uh, So I knew since I was like three or four that I wanted to fly military jets. So I was just finding my own path there, which I'm really happy included four, Completely normal years at Ole Miss. I had a lot of buddies that went to the Naval Academy. It sounds fun, but uh, I think I had a little bit more fun in the Grove.
0: So you got you outline. You went to Ole Miss for four years, and you realized you wanted to do that at an early age. What are you majoring in at Ole Miss to get prepared for that? Like, obviously, you need education to do what you do. But I, it's just kind of funny to me, like that Ole Miss would at all prepare you for that. What did you major in, and what were your what was your preparation process like in college to take on this career uh, this career path that you chose?
1: Uh, so I was a geological engineer major at uh Ole Miss. All of us that were always going on those rock field trips over uh, summer camp. Okay. Uh, so that's what I did. I chose that mostly because my parents thought that I had a great ability to waste potential and they didn't <laughs> want that to happen. So they told me uh, you can pick any major you want that ends with engineering. Uh, so... When I got to Ole Miss, I uh, went around, I think in like orientation or something, they were like, oh, here's the chemical engineers, the electrical engineers, the mechanical engineers. And uh, then I met the geological engineers, and they seemed pretty cool and pretty laid back. So I figured that's the one I would go with. Uh, and it actually – maybe mechanical engineering or something like that could have prepared me a little bit better. Uh, but a lot of the general engineering classes will give you what you need for Navy flight school because, I mean, there were guys in there that were you know, English majors, had finance majors – you have everything coming into it. It definitely gave me a stronger background and understanding the concepts we were trying to teach. Uh, But the first eight weeks of flight school is just all ground training. It's like an eight week college course on how planes fly and how engines work and stuff like that. So I, I definitely had a little bit of a leg up understanding fluid dynamics and static energy and things like that. But I mean, it doesn't matter what major you have. If you have one, you're eligible to uh, all you need is a bachelor's to apply. Obviously some are more competitive than others. um, But I mean, we had English majors. I I knew guys who were aeronautical engineers and barely got through flight school. And I know guys who were English majors and they are absolutely crushing it right now.
0: Are you doing anything on the side to get prepared to be a pilot? Because I mean, even I know just like a base level of flying, you have to get hours and train and all of that. Like, are you, had you taken a had you taken a plane in airborne in any form by the time you got to Ole Miss?
1: Uh, not when I got to Ole Miss, but by the time I graduated, I got uh, what's called a light sport license. It's below a private's license. It only takes like 20 hours to get technically. Um, but I only got that just so I could put on my application that I was an FAA certified pilot just because I thought it would, you know, make my application more competitive. But since I got that license, I flew my mom once in North Carolina and I flew Wesley once up here in Washington. Um, but she just, she was like, Oh, I want to go fly. So we went and flew. Um, but I haven't done a whole lot of civilian flying. Almost all of my time is in the military other than that very first little license I got to put on my application. And I mean, there, there are guys who come in with absolutely zero hours in the civilian world. And then I knew a guy who had 1500 hours in a Cessna and he failed out in formation stage just because he just couldn't fly formation. So you can come in with a ton of hours and be very successful. You can come in with a ton of hours and be not that successful. Same goes for coming in with zero hours. I mean, it's the program is really built so they can take any Joe Schmo with general ability to learn things and you can pick it up.
0: I find literally any Joe Schmo a little bit difficult to believe, but uh, well, I'll, I'll take your word for it on that one. So you you you've graduate from Ole Miss. Did you know, I I know I asked this earlier in some version, but like, was there ever any hesitation? It was, I'm graduating and I'm applying for flight school. Like there was, that was what you were going to do from the start.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I I was started in an application with the Navy and the Air Force uh, the summer before my senior year. So I I didn't want to do any other job. I think with all my other friends in geological engineering, they were doing uh, really cool internships and all kinds of things in the field of engineering. I had done absolutely none of that, <laughs> so uh, if I hadn't gotten accepted, uh, I guess I would have had to start working on things and actually make myself look like a real engineer instead of just somebody who had an engineering degree.
0: What's the process of picking, like, or, like what's the process of going to flight school like from the application to choosing, like, you choosing anything specific? What is that like? What was the transition like?
1: Uh, dude, the application is an absolute bear, uh, so it's probably, like, 30 pages, basically, like. Tell us where you were born and then describe your life up until now. Seems hard to um, Yeah. a uh, really end up, um, since, I mean, you're going to the military, you're going to be an officer, you're going to be in a leadership position in some pretty tough situations. So they really wanted to see some leadership background, uh, decision-making, all kinds of things like that. A lot of letters of recommendation. Um, and a lot of weight is put on those letters of recommendation too. Uh, GPA, all type, type of academic stuff. And then the one thing that separates it from your average job application, there's a ton of medical stuff too. Uh, so, I mean, I'd broken my leg, my left leg, left collarbone, left arm, left wrist, had a shoulder surgery. So doing all that paperwork was a pain. Um, so it did take until February of my senior year when they would even give me the medical screening. And then uh, it was another, what, six or seven months uh, until I guess not quite that long. It was like June of that summer after I graduated that I actually got accepted. So So that's
0: that's something like that's similar to what they used to get in like the service academies too. I had a neighbor that did that and he had like a very generic eye issue. I don't even know if it was like a lazy eye. It was very minor. And I think he got waitlisted to a year and went to one of those prep deals before he got in all over that one medical thing. Is that sort of the same process? Like you got to clear pretty much everything?
1: Yeah, and eyes, like you were saying, eyes are huge. I mean, there were guys who were in OCS with us. They did all three months of OCS. And then, like, two days before we were supposed to graduate and go to flight school, they told this one guy, like, oh, we found this, like, one tiny little bit of pigment on the back of your eye so you can't fly. Wow, that's it. I mean, yeah, just, like, so many minor little issues. The nice thing now is once you get your wings, they've invested so much money in your training and everything up to this point that it's easier to get a waiver and it's easier for them to work with you on medical issues, but the initial application is pretty stringent and they give out a lot of waivers, but there are some things like double sh- shoulder surgeries. This one is torn too. Um, so I should have gotten two sh- uh, shoulder surgeries. Uh, but it turns out that's a non-waiverable, uh, downer. So if I'd gotten that, there would have been no questions. They said like, we can't help you at all. You're not coming in. So it's, any minor little issue, they, lo- they love to give you a hard time about it.
0: That's, uh, that's pretty crazy. Okay, so you apply, you get in. get sounds like a pretty rigorous process. Is that a pretty gigantic collective exhale? Like what would you have done had you not gotten in? Do you wait around to the next year? What does that look like?
1: Oh, man, that was probably the biggest you know, sigh of relief in my life after waiting to hear for over a year uh, about that application. I uh, so, oh, working on it for a year, I'd probably been about three months just sitting around waiting to get a call, um, so it was it was awesome when I got the call and I was I was in. Uh, of course, that's only the first step to actually getting wings, but just knowing you got accepted was awesome.
0: first, yeah, I imagine that is pretty cool. So you get in. Do you know at that point? So you're in. You're flying for the Navy. Uh, here's a great question: Are they off boats? What's the deal with that? Like, are they, is boats out and the like planes are in? Like, it's it's wild to me. You're flying for the Navy.
1: Yeah, um, so the Navy has some, uh, they have P-8s, which is a land-based aircraft, it's basically just like an airliner, but uh, most other Navy pilots will at some point go to the boat, um, whether it's the copters or E-2C-2, which is a big uh, prop plane that flies off the carrier, and then like we're in F-18s and growlers, jets uh, off the aircraft carrier, so launching off the front on the catapult, landing on the, uh, on the deck without a resting hook, snagging the wire to land on the boat.
0: Gotcha. So at that point, do you know, do you know you're uh, going to fly for the Navy when you get into flight school? Like, Do you know your designation at all, or are you just trying to get the training?
1: Yeah, so you know uh, when you're applying, you apply to a specific branch. So it's either Air Force or uh, Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, um, whatever you want. Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard actually all do flight school together in uh, Pensacola and uh, a few other places around the country but they're all together. And then Air Force is uh they run their own separate flight school. So you know you're if you apply for the Navy you're going to Navy OTS and you're going to Navy flight school.
0: You get shipped off as you mentioned to Rhode Island. What's the first day of flight school like?
1: Oh, uh, so Rhode Island was a uh, officer candidate school. That was a little bit oh, okay, okay, it's kind of so, like a boot camp basically just turning you in from a normal person into uh a naval naval officer
0: what uh what goes into that you mentioned you're in there with people that were in the marine corps so obviously it's a uh probably some tough dudes in there what is that what is that process like
1: uh so that process was um just navy marine corps runs their own ocs it's only the flight school that's uh combined um but it was it was kind of the same as flight school is people from you know, going to Ole Miss and being from North Carolina, I was used to me and a bunch of other people kind of like me. Like, just right. generally hanging out with the same kind of dudes. Um, but then that was uh, completely different. You know, I don't think I'd ever met a person from Minnesota until I got to Navy, OCS, like, all over the country, all kinds of different backgrounds. Uh, and just going through three months of learning how to wear a uniform, learning the ranks, naval history, like, how do the laws of the Navy work, all that kind of stuff. So that, it was three months of generally just – you know steam pressing you into a naval officer but for flight school um we checked in and all of us thought we were super badass because we were just starting flight school you know we're the coolest uh turns out we were not the coolest we were it was like rolling up to freshman year and thinking you're the biggest badass in the high school when you're not um but it it was a lot of fun i mean we all checked in together we all started all those academics together and it was just generally a really fun exciting time because we were all you know, like I said, starting flight school, thought we were awesome, having a great time going out in Pensacola. It was great.
0: So the, the flight schools in Pensacola, after you kind of get, as you mentioned, made into like a military man, what is the uh, what is the learning curve like? Like what's, what's – how long from first day of showing up in Pensacola to hopping in an airplane? What How long does that take and take me through
1: the process of being trained to do what you do now? Uh, so that – I think it starts off – it was – maybe five weeks when I went through. I think they combined it into this big program that's like eight weeks um, where you do just academics and then a little bit of flying a Cessna, which I didn't do that when I was there. They changed it since I've been. Um, So you do all that together and then probably another month later, you're in your primary squadron, which is in uh, either Pensacola or Corpus Christi, Texas. So it's your first plane that you're going to fly in the Navy. Uh, It's just a single engine prop plane, two seat instructor sits in the back. You sit up in the front. And you spend about six months flying that plane, just getting the basics of, of how to fly a plane, like nothing advanced, no like true IFR, you don't get your instrument rating, you don't get your NATOPS qual, you don't get anything other than the basics of take off and land and don't crash in between those two things. Um, so once you do that, you, uh, everything gets graded and that all gets boiled down into one number, kind of like a GPA, except the uh, Navy calls it an NSS for like Navy standardized score probably not right but something like that uh and then based on that number you get selected for what you're going to fly out in the actual navy so there's a cutoff i think it went from like 25 to 80 was the range and if you were above 50 then you were qualified for uh flying off the carrier either in e2c2 which is uh another big prop plane on the on the carrier or in jets Uh, So since I was, you know, absolutely putting my nose to the grindstone in Pensacola, working super hard and not spending too much time at the bar, I got a 50.7. Is
0: that out of 100? Is that good or bad? It sounds like not great or good.
1: That's a range. uh, So it goes from 25 to 80.
0: Okay. Uh, So you're above average.
1: Yeah, above average. 50 was the absolute minimum. And I got a 50.7, which was a lot lower than I thought it was going to be. But it still qualified me. And uh, so then after that, you go to, I actually selected E2C2, which were uh, those other planes. Went down to Texas, did some multi-engine training in a King Air down there for that. And then when I got to Meridian, which was awesome, uh, they told me I was going back to Meridian. I was as happy as could be coming back, uh, going to the Grove, going to the baseball game. Sounded great to me. Sure. Uh, So got to Meridian, uh, started the Jet Syllabus, uh, which... I was just going to do the first half, which was kind of the easy half, and then go on to a different platform. But halfway through, my commanding officer came to me and said, hey, we need to pick someone to change from your platform over to jets. Do you want that? I told him, hell yeah, count me in. Uh, So then I finished that pipeline, which anyone, I mean, a lot of listeners around Mississippi, if you're around Meridian or around Jackson, you've seen those little jets flying around that are white with an orange nose, orange wingtips. Uh, Those are all T-45 Goshawk jets out of uh, Meridian training uh, Navy and Marine Corps uh, jet pilots for uh, eventually getting their wings and going onto the fleet. So there we did bombing, uh, low-level flight, uh, a very introductory course into BFM, which is uh, dogfighting. So just very entry-level stuff to get you the basics so that you know what you're talking about when you get to your fleet training squadron. And then you get your wings out of uh, Meridian. Or the same type of training takes place in Kingsville, Texas. So one of those two places you're going to get your wings and everyone will say, you're a real boy. Congrats. You did it. And that's another, like you were talking about that sigh of relief getting accepted into flight school. The day you get your wings is uh, even better than that. You know, you finally made it. You're not a student anymore. You're officially a Naval aviator. Uh, But as soon as you finish that, you are going back to the way you felt when you checked into Pensacola because you show up to, Uh, if you select the F-18, you're either going to Oceana, Virginia, Lemoore, California. Uh, but for everyone who's coming to fly the growler, you'll come up to Whidbey Island, Washington, and you go right back to being the bottom of the barrel, the new guy that doesn't know anything. And, uh, you spend about a year training on that platform for, you know, at this point you've already learned how to fly a plane. You can do that. (coughs) Oh, sorry, man. I'm getting over COVID right now.
0: No, that's okay. Uh uh,
1: But you've already learned how to fly the plane. You know how to take off and land. No problem there. So now you're training how to actually employ the plane in combat. Learning about all your weapon systems. Learning how to defend yourself if you end up, you know, with some Russian or Chinese guy trying to get in your face. Uh, Learning how to attack them. Whether that be up in Whidbey, we're using a lot of electronic attack. We know a lot about their radars and the tactics they're going to employ. So we develop tactics to counter that. Um, The F-18 guys dropping bombs, launching uh, long-range attack weapons, they'll train on that stuff. And then uh, eventually we'll all get together, go out on the ship, and work together to uh, do some harm. When's the first
0: time you're in the air and like, okay, holy hell, this is actually happening? Did you have that moment where you're in – obviously you mentioned you had like a little bit of – like a tiny bit of uh, experience doing civilian flying because you said it looked good on your resume. But when was the first time you were in the air in a military – grade level aircraft you're like okay i'm actually doing this like where is that in this whole process
1: i think everyone probably gets that uh your first solo flight when you don't have an instructor with you so that's your uh i think it was your 12th flight in the uh, t6 down in pensacola you have 11 flights for your instructor to teach you how to take off land how to you know survive if you have some sort of emergency and then on that 12th flight instructor's gone and it's just you and it's so quiet and peaceful because you don't have someone in your ear telling you how bad you're doing. Um, That's one way to look like, at
0: it. I'd be like, okay, uh, now if this thing goes down, it's on me.
1: <laughs> that is that is something that pops into the back of your head, that you don't have anyone there to uh, take the blame. It's all on you.
0: <laughs> but you, So you mentioned that in all seriousness, the 11 training fights. Are you pretty confident in your abilities to do what you need to do at that point? Or is there a butterflies-in-the-stomach moment when you're jumping into the airplane by yourself the first time? Like, what was your confidence range during that 12th flight?
1: I mean, I think if anyone told you they didn't have any butterflies, they're probably just overconfident, and they weren't thinking about what was really going on. Or lying. Um, But, yeah, or they're just straight-up lying, and they were scared. Um, But you do – I mean, by that point, you've done – everything that you need to do multiple times and an instructor has watched you and they've decided, yes, this guy is capable of going and doing this by himself, Uh, which is really one of the reasons they have those solo flights is just to show you like, Hey, you don't need instructor. We've trained you. You're a competent aviator. You can go out there and do it by yourself, which is another one of the big reasons the first time every Navy pilot ever goes to the carrier, they're solo in the jet. You don't have an instructor with you. Uh, an instructor leads you out there and he drops you off right in the pattern. Like there's very little you have to do other than take off and land at the carrier. Um, but they, you're solo, you're by yourself. And even in uh, our ready room in Meridian, when someone asked our skipper, who's our commanding officer, they said, hey, why don't we go do this by ourselves the first time? Why don't we have an instructor? And he just responded, what, you don't think you can do it? He was like, well, I mean, of course I can. He's like, all right, well, that's why. You know, We've trained you how to do this. Go out and do it. So I think that's a huge confidence builder, too, is, you know, they give you all the training. You have an instructor for however many percentage of that type of flight, and then you go out and do it by yourself just to to prove to everyone else and to prove to yourself that you can.
0: So you get the grade as you mentioned that kind of determines what you fly. You had the fifty point seven. I may not have done the math correctly on that one. I said slightly above average. You said fifty is the minimum, twenty five to eighty. I think fifty five ish, fifty three would be slightly above average. But you're in the averageish area. What? So at that, time, that how long is that? Like how? Uh, like once you get that grade, is that like a semester of school? What's the time frame for you to get that grade and realize what you're going to fly?
1: Uh, it's probably you know five months, maybe. Okay. Maybe, no, now that I think about it, my first flight was in June and I got that grade and selected right before uh, Thanksgiving. So, so a few it, months. it's not, yeah, it's not that, it's not a terribly short time, but it is not that long of a time. So during that first period of flight training, that's when you really need to be studying hard and buckling down. I I wish I had a little bit more, but um, that's when you really need to be busting your ass because those four months are going to determine the rest of your Navy career.
0: Right. So okay, you know, if, you,
1: if you mess around and don't really try that hard, well, guess what? Now you got bad grades and you're not going to get whatever plane you want because you're having too much fun in Pensacola.
0: I think you ran through this earlier a second ago, but refresh me because I'm trying to get my bearings on like uh like where you're at in the process at this point. What uh what plane did you get and where did you go next?
1: Uh, So I selected E2-C2, but um, so for for the entire training pipeline, um, I started in Pensacola flying the T-6, selected the E2 Hawkeye. Uh, So I went to Corpus Christi, Texas for, I was there from Christmas 16 until Labor Day 17, flying the uh, King Air for multi-engine training. Uh, Then went to Meridian Labor Day of 17 to fly the T-45 Goss which is our uh, training jet, that's when they switched me over to uh, jets for my fleet aircraft. Uh, So I finished training there, and then out of there, I selected the Growler, the EA-18G. And then uh, they sent me up here to Washington. I did that year of training. We were talking about uh, how to actually use it in combat. And then finished that about a year and a half ago. So I've been in my fleet combat squadron for about a year and a half.
0: Okay, I got you. So when you're flying those different types of aircrafts is I imagine there's a lot of that to get you different experience in different ones. But is that also trying to find which one best suits you if that makes any sense? So like I, I know it's not the same thing as like a med student, like trying to go through rotations and see which field he likes best or something like that. But is there a feeling out process of what you're best suited for too? Or is it just trying to get you as much experience as possible?
1: Uh, So it's, to be honest, it's not really either one of those. Okay. I wish it was, that would be a lot better. Um, so that that first pipeline where you get that one grade and then you select, uh, everyone flies the exact same plane and you only fly one plane until you get that final grade. Um, so from there, that's they use your grades and just your general, they just kind of feel out, A, are you a good pilot? Can you handle being, you know, if you're in an F-18 Echo, it's There's only one person in the plane, it's just you. and our plane, it's just me and one backseater, same thing with foxtrots. So they decide if they think you're good enough to succeed in jets where there's a lot going on, it's happening really fast, and you have to process information quickly, or, I mean, worst case, you and someone else are going to die. Or would you be better suited for a little bit slower paced? Uh, you know, like P8s, very good lifestyle. When they go on deployment, they're not cramped up on the carrier. They are in hotels, collecting per diem, Wi-Fi to call the wife or girlfriend every night. Awesome lifestyle. But the flying is not as difficult uh, as flying jets. So, What's the difference a, between a, a, guy, a jet for the commoner?
0: So you mentioned you guys switched to jets. What is the difference in the aircraft, though? general, just like general difference?
1: Okay. Um, yeah, so helicopters are helicopters. Uh, jets are uh, like jets, like anyone who's seen Top Gun or Behind Enemy Line you recognize those. The other one is uh, that I was talking about the P8. It's basically an airliner. Um, okay. they, they put a bunch of computers on it and a bunch of sensors. It's a sub hunter. Um, so it'll go, it'll fly like 200 feet over the ocean, just straight and level with using whatever it has in there. I think they drop like sauna buoys out the back to uh, try to find subs. But even though you're 200 feet off the water, it's straight and level. It's, it's not very dynamic flying. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty tame for the most part. I mean, I don't fly them, so I could be a little bit off base on that one, but in general, uh it's not quite as challenging. So that's how they that's why they kind of break it up like that that if you did really well in primary and you're crushing the part that's just flying the plane, then you probably have some extra brain power to add in all these split second decisions for tactics. Uh and if you're kind of struggling with the flying, maybe you're more suited for something that's a little bit slower, a little a little slower paced.
0: I just looked up the P-8. That is a huge-ass aircraft to be flying 200 feet above the ocean. That's insane. But I, oh, yeah. I, as you mentioned a lot of computer systems, right? Uh, I actually sat next to an off-duty commercial airline pilot on a plane one time, and he was like, these things basically fly themselves these days. And, like, I know there's skill that goes into it, but you're saying it's, like, in terms of the technology and the computer, it's a very smooth, fairly simple process on your scale. I would walk in there and be like, I, right, when is this thing going now? Not if. But that, that makes sense. So you get switched to jets. Is that when you kind of find your calling a bit in what you do now? What is, what, so once you get switched, take me up from there to getting to Washington.
1: Uh, yeah, so when I got switched, I was super, super happy to hear it. Since my dad was a Jet guy, that's what I had wanted off, the, cool. uh, off the bat. So it was basically like a second chance. You know, I, I didn't get it out of Pensacola. And then they came back and were like, hey, we have a spot for you. Do you want it? So I, I kind of got a second a second life there. Okay. And a second chance. So, how how I was saying in Meridian, the syllabus is broken up into two parts. There's the, it's called iJet and AJet, intermediate and uh, advanced. So, intermediate is just, you know, the same thing over again, just learn how to fly the plane, except this time it's a jet instead of a propeller plane. So, there are some nuanced differences. It's a different type of flying when it's a jet versus a prop. Um, So, you have to get really good at that. But then the second half was when what you were talking about, I really found my stride and I was really. Really excited about what we were doing. That was the tactical part where you're, you know, you're dropping bombs, you're doing basic introductory uh, dogfighting, you're doing low level stuff, um, night formation, all kinds of uh, tactical formation, just, you know, keeping your two jets in the right piece of sky while you're dynamically maneuvering. That was where it actually got really fun. And instead of the instructor coming in and saying, hey, today we're going to take off, you're going to navigate around, hopefully without getting lost and then you're going to land, hopefully without crashing. Sound good? Instead, <laughs> now you're walking into the brief, and they're saying, hey, guys, we're going to take off. We're each going to go drop eight bombs on this target out in the middle of Mississippi, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to grade all your bombs, and the best guy gets a bottle of booze.
0: Holy cow. So, I mean, when you say dropping bombs, is that a literal bomb? Are, you, are there explosives going off in the middle of nowhere in Mississippi?
1: Uh, there is a target in Mississippi, but the bombs that we use there uh, are just – we call them blue death. They're, I mean, they're probably like two and a half feet long, but they're only 25 pounds. And uh, the only explosive they have in them is a tiny little smoke charge so that you can see it when it hits the ground.
0: Okay. I was, I was, I was going to be just absolutely enthralled if things were actually getting blown up um, <laughs> over
1: the It'd side. be a lot more fun, but they, they didn't quite trust us with the 500 pounders.
0: You probably scare off some normal people too. You know, maybe <laughs> you got people like deer hunting and shit, and then all of a sudden just, boom, out in the middle of nowhere. So, so you get training on that. When do you, how do you, when do you get to Washington? How long have you been there?
1: Uh, I've been here since summer of 19. So I guess it's like two and a half years now. Um, exactly. See, so yeah, I moved up to
0: final destination. To like, is that like a, I've made it? I'm full fledged you being up there?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, once you get up here, you have one more training pipeline to go through. It's called the uh, FRS or the fleet replacement squadron. Um, so you're not when you're actually in a squadron that will deploy and will go to combat if the need arises, that's called your fleet squadron. Uh, So you still have to go through a year at the fleet replacement squadron, learning how to fly the actual growler. But I mean, if, if you had to sum up, I mean, there's so many of these, I made it moments throughout the entire thing, you know, when you get accepted, when you first get to Pensacola, when you get your wings, that's huge. Uh, But when you finish the FRS and you go to a fleet squadron, that's when you have actually made it
0: okay what is I know getting your wings is a huge deal to the to the schmuck like me asking, when did you get your wings? what does that uh allow you to do from like a license perspective what did when did you get your wings and how did that work
1: uh so I got my wings uh, I guess it was Memorial Day of nineteen um, Wesley and I had already been dating, so our my winging ceremony was actually at the Naval Aviation Museum down in Pensacola instead of uh, marine. So she came down to uh, Pensacola, met my family there. Uh, They have a big ceremony. They have everyone up on the stage, read any awards that you had gotten. So I'd gotten like one uh, bombing award for accuracy um, on one lucky day when there was no wind, thank God. I
0: bet that looks pretty Uh, sick on a resume.
1: Oh, yeah, my my T-45 Blue Death Bombing Award. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, Wesley came down to uh, Pensacola. Uh, we had a, a guest speaker. Uh, it was actually a guy in my class. I think it was his dad. He was an admiral. Um, so he was the guest speaker and then they bring everyone up on stage, punch your wings into your chest. Uh, and you are officially a Naval aviator. Um, so that's so, the culmination
0: of flight like, is that, would that be wrong to call it the culmination of flight school?
1: Yeah, that's the end of flight school. Okay.
0: That's what I thought. Okay, cool. So, yeah. all right. So you're at Washington now. So you've been there, like you mentioned since 19. Take yeah. me through, because this is the part that I think a lot of people find interesting. You are flying a military-grade aircraft, as I outlined. Your job is to base, oh, actually, I'll let you explain that, but let's go through the flying process. How? What is, when? from the time you get at a flight assignment to the time you take off into the air, what is the process of what you have to do to get ready to get in the airplane and take off?
1: Oh, man. Well, that would start all the way back, depending on what kind of flight it is. Say like it's a generic um, jamming flight, Uh, going to take down some surface to air missile. Uh, It would start the day before Uh, you would have what's called a mission planning cell where you identify all the threats that are out there, identify the people that you're trying to protect from those threats, where they're going to be going, what they're going to be doing. And you come up with a whole big mission plan for how the flight's going to go down, You're gonna be here, you're gonna be there. Like at this time do this, at this time do this. Definitely don't do this or you will die. And make sure you do this on your way home. Uh, So we'll put that whole mission plan together, uh, put it into about a six page kneeboard card that you have strapped to your leg in the jet that has all the information you could need uh, for the mission. But that's in an Excel file and I suck at Excel. I mean, I could try to like copy and paste one cell and suddenly the whole thing just turns green.
0: Should have gone um, to the old Miss so, business school, man. They'll teach you the shit out of Test Bank in Excel.
1: I know, dude. Uh, uh, there's uh, one guy in our squadron. He was in finance before the Navy, and he absolutely shreds on Excel. Doesn't need a <laughs> mouse. He's just keyboard whizzing away, making things look perfect. Uh, so you'll put together that mission card, uh, and then that mission card has to accurately reflect your mission load, which we use computers to build the mission load so that the jet already knows, you know, hey, I want to do this, I want to do that, whatever it may be. Um, So once all that's done, then just the person who's going to brief the mission uh, has to know it a little bit more in depth than everyone else. Um, So the next day, so all that's the day before, that's all done. The next day, you'll show up in two hours before takeoff time. I'll sit down in the ready room, get some coffee, popcorn, whatever, and have the flight brief, which will be just about one hour. Starts off with uh, all the basics that we just call admin. Um, You know, hey, we're going to take off at this time. These are the frequencies we're going to use. This is the range that we're going to and the times that we're scheduled to be there. And we're going to take off in this order. If you encounter weather, just get a radar lock and follow us out. Uh, Then we'll go into TAC admin, uh, which is how we're going to get into the fight. Like we're going to check in on blue, you know, three, whatever the frequency is. Uh, Check in with someone there. Tell them that we're on station. We're ready for the fight. And then at that point, you'll brief the conduct portion, um, which is where you're talking about what you're actually gonna be doing. Like I was talking about earlier, like at COMEX, which is just the general uh, term, uh, I think it's commence exercise. Um, That's the beginning of the fight. Like at COMEX, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. At COMEX plus 12 minutes, we need to be here ready to do this. At COMEX plus 27 minutes, if this person is not dead, then we're going to change the plan and we're going to do this and try to kill them, whoever it is. Is that a, uh,
0: we talking hypothetical or real?
1: Uh, hypothetical, but in, in every like training scenario, they'll, you can just use computer systems to yeah, create yeah, yeah. out you. there. Yeah. Um, so then you'll have some sort of timeline that's going to affect how you're going to run the fight. And then about an hour later, everyone will be uh, running out of gas and then you'll head back to base. Um, so you'll brief up that entire flight so that everyone is on the same page for the game plan. Uh, following that, you'll you know, get another cup of coffee, maybe go use the bathroom, whatever you want to do before your flight, head downstairs and uh, check out the jet. You have to talk to the maintenance folks, make sure there's nothing you know, wrong with the jet, whether it had some work done on it yesterday or they want you to, you know they said, hey, the radar was acting funny yesterday, will you take a look at it today? Um, that type of stuff. Then you go put your gear on, so just a general, uh, a G-suit, which just, it's like a really tight pair of jeans that squeezes your legs uh, when you pull Gs to force the blood uh, back up into your head. So you got one of those, you have your harness that has a bunch of survival stuff, like all around your torso, just covered in pockets with survival stuff in case you end up on the ground. But uh, then you'll walk out to the jet, do a quick pre-flight on it. I mean, maybe four or five minutes, just walking around, looking at a few key things, hop into it and it's not really that hard to start, I mean, back in the day, it was super difficult where you had to have a very precise start sequence. Now, I think if I trimmed some of the fat from the checklist, I could from the time I sat down in the seat to having it online pulling out of the jocks you know seven or eight minutes, maybe wow. um, then you know take off, execute the flight, uh come back, and everyone's jet records their screens it records your communications um so in the debrief where you break down what happened in the flight did this go well did this go well um everyone can see your screens and see exactly what you were doing and what you were saying so if you were like oh yeah i definitely shot that sam with a missile but you didn't uh that's not going to go well because everyone's going to call out your bs and the debrief. there's no lying
0: the computer's oh, going no
1: Oh, the computer's got you, man. The the tapes are always the most brutal part of any debrief.
0: How fast does your aircraft go? Uh,
1: I think Wikipedia says, like, Mach 2. But if anyone tells you that, they are either a test pilot or they are full of shit. Because I think the fastest I've heard of someone taking one is Mach 1.4. That's the fastest I've personally talked to someone who did it. Um, But it – you know, back in the day, the F4, the F14, those things were built for speed. They wanted them to go high and they wanted them to go fast. Um, but there's kind of a different set of priorities now with what we want out of our jets.
0: So sorry, it's just, I had to, obviously I had to look up Mach 2. That's the speed of sound. That's 1500 miles an hour.
1: Uh, yeah. Mach 2, two times the speed of sound.
0: Okay. <laughs> so when you're on one of these flights, I know it probably varies. How fast are you rolling? Uh,
1: generally you'll fly either an airspeed, the, saves your gas over time or saves your gas over distance but um i mean i've talking about mock and the the speed of sound there was one flight they they hate when we break the sound barrier because everyone in washington doesn't like sonic booms apparently and uh i was headed off these days yeah everyone just busting my ass about these sonic booms and uh so we were on a flight over uh the okanagan which is kind of like the north Uh, northeast part of Washington it's like the the high desert kind of boonies and uh we were in a fight I just shot like a simulated missile and I was doing this maneuver to get back flowing cold and I was like 70 degrees nose low pulling a lot of g but I forgot that I was still in max afterburner and we were going we were just absolutely smoking through the sky um, so I broke the sound barrier, went through, uh, we call it busting the number. went to, I think we went up to like Mach 1.1, 1. 1, so not that fast. I didn't break it by that much, uh, but I did break it. And uh, every now and then we'll get complaint calls from people like, I could hear your jets over Eastern Washington today. <laughs> so they really, they don't like when we bust the sound barrier over land.
0: So for idiots like me, that's about 800 miles an hour. Do you ever just sit up there and you're like, while you're cruising, you're like, I'm going pretty fucking fast right now. Like, does that ever, does that ever occur to you?
1: No, when you're up high, you really can't tell that much. I mean, it's
0: like flying uh, virtually in that sense, right? You can't tell you're going fast, but you're cooking.
1: Yeah. it's like, uh, like a month and a half ago we were flying down to, um, uh, Fallon for an exercise. And our our ground speed was, I think, like six, about 600 knots. Um, we were only indicating like 320 or so because the the speed that you're doing over the ground isn't quite the same speed you're doing through the air. Uh, and as you go up in altitude, you're, there's variations in pressure and stuff. So we we're doing 600 knots over the ground, but it was just the same as being in an airliner. The only time you can really tell is when uh, you fly low-level routes. And, I mean, I've done... I got up there around 480, 500 miles an hour um, at about 500 feet over the ground. And then you can absolutely just haul on it right across the ground. Wow.
0: Okay. So we've got that part down. You're flying it. What's the, uh, so you mentioned the part, I was, I was going to ask about equipment, but you pretty much covered it. What's the part. So when you put that thing on, why do you need all the blood to go to your head or no, or whatever it is?
1: Oh, yeah, your G-suit. So whenever you pull, like, you know, on the bottom of a roller coaster, how you get that feeling you're getting pushed down into your seat? Yes. Uh, Every time you turn the airplane, uh, especially, like, a super hard turn where, like, at air shows you see planes with the vapor coming off of the wings, anytime you do that, you're putting a a G-loading on the aircraft and on yourself. So that G-suit, well, first of all, when you do that, all the blood in your body wants to follow that extra gravity. So I weigh like 200 pounds uh, on a good day when I'm all caked up, you know? Yeah. Uh, But if I'm pulling three Gs, suddenly my body weighs 600 pounds and all that blood feels the extra gravity and it starts to drain out of your head. Um, If that happens, you're first going to get something called a gray out because the first thing to go is your eyesight. Uh, So you'll get a gray out where you lose color vision then if you don't do something about it, you'll have tunnel vision where it just comes in like this until you're looking through a soda straw and that's all you can see is just the one little dot of sight. Uh, after that, you black out and you are no longer in control of the plane. And uh, a lot of people have died uh, doing that. It's called uh, CFIT, Controlled Flight into Terrain, due to G-lock, which is a uh, G-induced loss of consciousness. So uh, you put that G-suit on, every time you pull Gs, it'll squeeze your legs And it'll help you squeeze that blood uh, back up. There's also something called uh, AGSM, anti-G straining maneuver, where you like squeeze your leg muscles and your butt muscles super tight and squeeze your abs. And doing all of that will help you push blood back up. And then they have like a little HIC maneuver, which is something you do with your throat to exchange air. So it's kind of like breathing, but not quite. Um, but that way you don't release all the air out of your lungs, um, while you're squeezing like that. Cause if you squeeze like that and you don't have a full breath of air, if you're up at like six, seven, above seven G's, you can't actually, it's too heavy to lift your chest to get a new breath. So you have to take in a huge breath, pull the G on, and then you can't take another breath until, uh, until you let the G off. Cause your, your chest is just too heavy. Your lungs can't fight against your chest. Wow.
0: Okay. So your official squadron is VAQ-140. Wikipedia says y'all's nicknames are the Patriots. Do y'all go by that at all?
1: Oh yeah. Okay, Patriots. So
0: Patriots. How many of there are y'all? I know that's a terrible way to ask that. How many of there are y'all though?
1: Um, so we have 22 aircrew right now. We have seven pilots and uh, 22 minus seven backseaters. Um, and we have about 180, uh, maybe closer to 200, uh, enlisted sailors who work on our jets. They're the ones, uh, fixing, you know, if we break something, they're fixing it. They're doing the regular maintenance for it. We have an admin department. They're taking care of all the paperwork because the Navy, oh my God, I don't care what job out there you have. It does not have more paperwork than the Navy. It is insane. I mean, if you want to go to the bathroom at a regular working hour there's a form for it it's crazy so So, we have the admin department our maintenance department all those sailors are the ones that really make the squadron run I mean I I show up to the jet I take it flying or bring it back but for every hour that I fly that jet there's probably about 15 maintenance hours of people working on it to make sure it stays flying so those guys are the real heroes actually making making these planes fly
0: outline what basically what you outlined to me in the email you kind of hit it at the top of the podcast but you guys's purpose is electronic attack and what was striking to me the way you worded the first email was if a war ever broke out this would be the first step you guys purpose if a war broke out tomorrow some crazy ass dude over in the asian pacific was like let's let's get after it what's happening and what does that mean for you
1: So the first thing that would have to happen is uh, destruction of enemy air defenses or DEED uh, as they abbreviate it. Um, Because all those surface-to-air missiles, if we just thought we were going to launch 200 planes to go over there and bomb whatever we wanted to bomb, that would go terribly because they would shoot down probably close to every single one of them. Okay. Uh, So the first step is to destroy those enemy air defenses, uh, which we're going to do with, you know, F-35s, F-15s, B-1s, whoever's got bombs and is willing to go drop them. Uh, but in order for those guys to get close enough that they can drop those bombs without getting shot down, they need suppression of enemy air defenses, which we have cleverly abbreviated as SEED. <laughs> um, so we're all the we're the main SEED players for the Navy. The Air Force has some SEED players with a F-16 CJs, um, but... They don't have any jamming pods. We are the military's only airborne electronic attack uh, suppression of enemy air defense platform. So we'll line up, you know, say it's gonna be F-15Es that are gonna go drop these bombs and kill these SAMs. We will line up directly behind them and with our little jamming beam, protect them as they go in to destroy those SAMs. So, I mean, it's something like in uh, Iraq, uh, like 2003, same thing happened back in 1991 in the first desert storm. The first thing you have to do is take down those enemy air defenses so that you can establish uh, air superiority. But these days, if you don't have a jamming asset with you, you're not going to get far. They're just going to blow you out of the sky.
0: Gotcha. And so you guys are basically stopping the, one, the planes, the bombs, from getting hit by missiles. And yep. how, what goes into that? How does that work? Like you mentioned, the beam is that literally just some sort of like laser beam that kind of throws off whatever detection they have? What, what, what explain to me that process?
1: I wish it was as accurate as a laser beam, man. Okay. Uh, it is, uh, it's these, uh, we have one pod that hangs directly under the center line and then one pod that hangs on each wing. And, uh, so those guys say they're Russians sitting in their little SAM, uh, truck looking at the computer screens and the radar screens, they'll see. Oh, like there's, you know, six American jets coming at us. We should probably shoot these guys down and hopefully capture them. Um, So they'll be looking at their radar screen. They can see us just fine. And then once we turn the jammers on, as long as we're in the right position and we have the jammers on the correct setting, all that goes away. And then they can't see us. They can't shoot us down or say it's in a situation where, you know, there's a lot of different things you can do to radars to make them ineffective, either. Completely blank out the screen or fill the screen up with so many other things that it's difficult to see what's real and what's not. Um, but it's all some nerds in Johns Hopkins uh, figure that stuff out <laughs> and they are the 50 pound brains who are smart enough to actually know how that radar works and what needs to happen to it. Then they just pass us the software for the plane and Sometimes it is as easy as just pushing a button, and the plane just starts jamming whatever you wanted it to jam. Sometimes it's significantly more complicated than that, and there's 15 things you're trying to jam, but you only have six, you know, six transmitters, and you have to decide what you want to jam. And it's time critical, and it's constantly changing. Um, but as long as you're doing the right thing with the jet in the right piece of sky at the right time, uh, then you should be able to protect whoever you're trying to protect from getting shot down.
0: Gotcha. So for you, though, in, in dumb like dumb people's term, dumb it down for me, when you're in the plane and you're jamming, what does that look like for you? Are you looking at a screen and trying to line something on a screen? What are you doing to make that happen?
1: Yeah, so um, like I was talking about, I have someone in the backseat with me. That's right. my electronic warfare officer. So they are the experts in getting that jamming done. So they'll have a screen showing them. You know options to jam you know what's out there, you know this is friendly, this is bad, this is friendly, I don't know about this one so they can go through and uh, see all those potential targets uh, those wingtip pods that we have, those soak up radiation, classify it and give it to you as what it is um, so they'll go through that list and when they see something that is a target for us, they will uh, basically as mechanized as it's mechanizing in the jet, push a button, and uh, it will jam for them. And the computer does all types of crazy things. It's almost like we're giving it what we want it to do, and it'll either make it happen, or it'll tell you, hey, like, I can't do that. I, I don't have the resources to do that. So it is, you're looking at a screen, and you say, I wanna jam that. Uh, and then up in the front seat, my uh, main responsibility is gonna be aligning us you know, whether it be left or right, you know, how close do I want to be, all that kind of stuff. Getting us in the right piece of sky um, so that that jamming will be effective.
0: I hate to dumb this down to any war movie I've ever seen, but you know in the Jeeps and the movies where the dudes had the machine guns in the back and, like, uh, they're shooting in the back, you're the driver making sure everything's in the right place if we're using a ground example?
1: Yeah. Okay. ground example to you're right well, uh, so we have like a big division of responsibilities. Um, so jamming is a super, super complicated thing to do. It's, it's not easy. It's especially on a big mission. There are so many different things to jam that it can get super overwhelming. So uh, I take position of the plane, the air-to-air picture. So I'm looking at my air-to-air radar, making sure there's no other bad guys out there that want to shoot us down from the air. And then if we are going to shoot any air-to-ground missiles, uh, that'll also fall on me. And the EWO's responsibility, primary responsibility is just the jamming. And if you have a great, a great EWO, they, their bucket is so big, they can, you know, they can help you with everything while they're doing their job. Um, if you have a more inexperienced EWO, then you're probably looking at flying, managing the air-to-air, air-to-ground picture, while also maybe helping them out with jamming. Um, so it's all fluid, it depends on out of those four tasks, Which one is the biggest priority? Which one is the biggest pain? Because sometimes the air-to-air picture just doesn't exist at all, and I don't have to think about it. So that frees up more time and more brain power for me to help my Evo with any jamming that they need help with.
0: Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. So being like – I mean, that's the kind of the front lines of the front lines when you talk about a war, if – Say the fire alarm went off tomorrow, and there actually was one. How quick? Like, I, I, like, do you guys go through how quickly the process would be, or is it more complicated than that, where you'd actually have to get a mission and then you'd just be prepared for it because you trained for it? Like, would there uh, ever well, be a situation where you're almost acting like a first responder type thing, where you're like, okay, we got to, shit, we got to get up and go?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's why. I mean, even though we're not engaged, you know, we're out of Afghanistan, we're kind of sitting on our hands seeing what happens in ukraine which i think is good no reason to get in there for no reason um but that's why carriers deploy all the time even when there's not a huge shooting war uh i mean i think if something happened that ness like meant we needed to be in the ukraine in 24 hours that's a pretty tight timeline but they might be able to make it happen i mean in all the movies that's why they like something happened, where are the carriers? Right. And that's always what the president's saying. I mean, that's why we always deploy, even when there's not a huge shooting war. You know, there's always someone hanging out over in the Pacific, someone out, you know, maybe in the Gulf of Oman, the Persian Gulf, Mediterranean, just cruising the world, waiting for someone to fuck around and find out.
0: How do you, how do you guys, so you mentioned the training missions and the different flight things you have to do each day. How do you guys simulate it? if there's nothing literally to jam and there's no uh, bomber so, present, are you flying with bombers even like on training missions?
1: Uh, if we can get them, we don't get bombers uh, that often. I know some guys who have worked with actual uh, bombers, um, but generally we can just use like our computers and the systems that they gave us when they built them. They knew that out of every one, you know, at this point, Call it every 100,000 flights, maybe uh, 100 of those are actual combat flights, and that all the other ones are training flights. So they built in a really robust training system that allows us to go into the computer and, you know, sitting in the office, I can say, I want to Sam here, I want to Sam here, I want to Sam here. Load that into the computer. And when I go to the plane, I plug that little card in and it has the scenario that i built already loaded into it
0: okay so in some ways when you go out on a like a flight and you have you mentioned there's different ones there's different instructions in a very broad sense is that kind of like a football team practicing a different play
1: oh yeah absolutely man so, and i mean okay. you've got just like a football team you've got offense you've got defense uh i mean you've got different positions on the field you know are you a running back or are you left guard right Um, so it's, it's just like that every day is football practice, but, um, there's and every, every pilot plays and every EWO plays every position on the field. Some days you're going out to offensively strike something. Some days you're going out there to protect the carrier from an air threat called a DCA, a defensive counter air. Um, some days you're going out to just fly low level and have a whole lot of fun. Um, some days you're going out for BFM, like those dogfighting fights. Uh, some days you're going out looking for ships, you know, some days you're going out, we already found the ship there, are, you know, a hundred different kinds of flights we could do. Um, and the point of doing, you know, we keep our training schedule super varied, you know, some, some days I've walked in and I'm like, Oh, I'm doing that kind of flight today. Okay. didn't know that. And it briefs in 20 minutes. Um, but the whole point of that is so that you don't need a full day and a half of prep for any one of those missions you can in 20 minutes be like, Oh, let me get a quick spin up. All right, let's go do it.
0: Right. It's getting the cadence and the timing down to know, you know, if things actually hit the fan, Hey, we can do this. We can pull this off. That makes sense. Now I'm starting to understand it and it's coming together a little bit. I got you. So, when – when uh, I asked you this, I think, when we were actually talking at the bar. What area are you flying over? I know generally, obviously, you're based out of Washington, Pacific Ocean. I got all that. What's your guys' REAPs? Like, how far can you go? What areas of the world are you predominantly flying over?
1: Uh Areas of the world? Right now, uh, mine are limited to Florida, Texas, Mississippi, Washington, and California. Wait, so you're taking
0: technically- uh, – like, over there?
1: Oh, I mean, just when I was in training, like right now on our day-to-day basis, uh, we have three different areas over land in Washington, one out over the Olympic Peninsula, uh, and then two that are over on eastern Washington, uh, and then one that's out over the water, but nobody likes to use that one during the winter because you have to wear like a dry suit underneath your flight gear, and it's just absolutely miserable. It's the worst. It's called a poopy suit it's just terrible um, <laughs> so it's so all, it's all pretty, when that. you're
0: training it's all pretty close range that
1: okay yeah, that makes it's sense. all it's all local when you're just doing normal training up here and then Got like you. in uh, in february we're headed out to virginia and we're going to be off the coast of pretty much just off the east coast virginia maybe down to florida uh so we'll be on the boat for about a month uh doing training there uh and then when you actually go on cruise you could be in the Mediterranean, South China Sea, you know, Gulf of Oman, Persian Gulf, where, wherever they decide it's most important for you to fly on that particular day.
0: What, uh, what's it, so where the, when's the first time you landed on an aircraft carrier? Take me through that, what that's like. like. What's the aircraft carrier's role in all of this, outside the obvious?
1: Uh, um, well, to answer that in order, the first time I landed on a carrier was off the coast of San Diego. Okay. Uh, it was March of 2019. Uh, so, we all, you see that I have this uh, absolutely terrible trash stash right now. Yes. That mustache is uh, a requirement for the boat. Anytime we fly around the boat, we bring our mustaches with us. I like that. Uh, but I had a very similar trash stash back in uh, March of 19. And we'd been doing prep flights for probably about a month and a half of uh, just practicing that carrier landing because um, it's a very, it's different than landing an That's airliner. What I was gonna ask. What's
0: the difference between that and like landing on an actual airport? Yeah, so,
1: so airliners and just other planes in general. I mean, to include air force jets, uh, the the normal accepted way of landing is you come in at a certain speed when you're over the runway. You just kind of pull the nose up and just kind of like gently touch down. But when you do that, you don't know exactly where your plane is going to touch the ground and that is not acceptable for the carrier. Um, So to land on the carrier, there's something called a ball. It's just a little, it's like a row of lights within a vertical row of lights, but you can only see one of these vertical lights and you can always see the horizontal lights. So when that light on the vertical bar lines up with the horizontal bar, you're on glide slope. If it's above, you're above glide slope. If it's below, you're below glide slope. So you fly, uh, an angle of attack, and you fly that glide slope to an exact touchdown point on the carrier deck, uh, which is just—I mean—it's a complete departure from every other type of landing I've ever done. Uh, but it's really fun once you uh, once you get the hang of it. It can be it can be a lot of fun, but it's still uh, very challenging. I mean, at any moment you could be looking just fine, and a second and a half later, if you look away for more than a second that's a second too long um so march 19 we were off the coast of san diego uh went out to the ship with a flight lead who was a senior instructor he used to be like an f-14 guy he was really cool um flies uh like airbuses now for the airlines uh, so he took us out there dropped us off in the pattern and i just kind of did of course you're freaking out because you're at the ship for the first time and you're by yourself and You know, you've never done this before. You've been thinking about it for the last six months, but the day is here. Right. And I made my approach turn behind the carrier and I rolled out and I swear to God, I have never been, I mean, at that point, it doesn't do you a whole lot of help just to be scared because you like, you've been doing this for so long. It just kind of takes over. And you think, well, like, I, it's like when you get on the roller coaster and it hasn't it hasn't shot yet, but you can't get off.
0: Yeah, you're toast. And like, you it, think, this is happening regardless yeah, if you like it or not.
1: This, this is happening no matter what I do. So you just – you fly your first ever pass at the carrier. Hopefully it's a good one. Uh, you know, a lot of people get waved off on their first one, which is not uncommon. Thankfully that didn't happen to me. But it was – you know, some people uh, – have described flying I'm not sure if they were talking about military flying and or just flying in general as you know hours of boredom interrupted by moments of sheer terror sure. uh, I would say that's that's kind of how that very first carrier passes it's just 18 seconds once you roll out and you're behind the boat and you're coming in 18 seconds of just not knowing what's going on just reacting exactly how the instructors trained you to like balls low a little bit of power balls high a little power off like making these super super fast super small corrections and before you know it it's over and just like that you either touch and go if it was a touch and go or you hit the wire and it's a really violent stopping motion Um, i saw
0: the video you said those things stop on a dime.
1: oh yeah that arresting hook will have you going from about 130 to 150 miles an hour to dead stop and you no, know, two seconds maybe a little bit less
0: but is that like a it hurts good type of pain because you know you did okay
1: oh yeah okay <laughs> yeah once you especially if you're low on gas or something or you you missed your last trap and you went around because you you flew a bad pass that the second your hook engages that wire it throws you forward in your seat and similar to seat belts in cars where there's that inertial reel that if you pull on it really fast it'll catch our uh, harnesses have the same thing. So it'll throw you forward about six inches and then it'll catch and pull on you really hard. So as soon as you catch that wire and you get thrown forward in your seat, you're just like, all right, another successful trap, pat myself on the back.
0: <laughs> okay. Gotcha. So that's a, that's pretty crazy because that, that doesn't seem easy to do. Obviously you mentioned, you know, 18, 20 seconds of sheer terror sometimes comes with flying from a safety yeah. perspective. Obviously, I I mean, all of your preparation, not all of your preparation, but your basic preparation seems to be shaped around what to do if something goes wrong. What mechanisms are in place in these military grade level planes to ensure you survive something if the plane has to go down or something like that? Take me through kind of your safety nets.
1: Well, I mean, uh, the Hornet, like the F-16, an Air Force jet, just has one engine. Uh, Thankfully, we have two engines, which I definitely like. Um, so a lot of these systems are redundant. Uh, I mean, I could take one of my throttles, say like I have an engine fire in the left engine. I can take that throttle, turn that engine off, and all my systems are still going to work. The, the plane is going to fly just fine. Um, so all those systems are very redundant. It flies, everything works with one engine, no problem. Um, even if you do start to lose a couple systems, you know, we have four hydraulic systems you can lose up to three of those and still safely recover to an airfield in most cases. Some of them, maybe you can't go back to the carrier, but you're at least still flying. The plane will fly with one of those four hydraulic systems working. Uh, same thing, pretty much every system on the plane, there's two of them. So just from an emergency standpoint, it's a very, it's a very tough plane. Um, it's, it's got all kinds of things in place. To keep you safe. Now, there's still plenty of dangerous things that can happen. That uh, there are emergency procedures that are called boldface that you have to memorize. And at any point, if someone asks you what that emergency procedure is, you need to be able to say it, you know, off the top of your head. Um, just because you don't have time in that situation to break out a book and read through it. It's a critical emergency. You need to handle it now. Um, But as long as you do that and you knock out that procedure correctly in a timely manner, the plane will generally take care of you and it'll bring you home. Uh, I mean, absolute worst case, if you find yourself in a plane that's just dying, whether it was from some sort of mechanical malfunction or, you know, worst case, overseas, some sort of battle damage, you've always got the ejection seat. I was about Um, to
0: ask if that's possible.
1: Yeah. So it'll always, and since we have two people, um, the first thing it will do is just blow the canopy off the plane. The seater will get shot out and then I'll get shot out. And then, uh, based on your altitude, it'll either deploy your parachute or let you, you know, come down into warmer air and then deploy your parachute. Um, it'll Martin Baker has made some, there's, that's the uh, company that produces our ejection seats. Those seats are incredible. I mean, the only time those seats have failed is when it was faulty maintenance. You know, those. It's it's kind of nice flying, knowing that absolute worst case, I'm out I don't there. have to go into the I don't have to go into the dirt with this plane. I have a way out.
0: Sure, when you're uh, but have you ever had to practice that? Do they train you? Like, uh, you, have yeah. you ever been ejected out of a plane?
1: So you don't actually eject out of the plane. What they have down in Pensacola, it's a uh, it's an ejection seat on a big rail and it has compressed gas, and they make you practice pulling the handle, and then it shoots you up the railing on the uh, ejection seat, and then the seat just like slowly comes back down the uh, railing. Uh, sure. So everybody has to do that. Um, everyone has to practice. Uh, down in Pensacola, they fit you out with all your gear, give you a parachute, uh, and then drop you into a pool, and you have to you know fight your way out of the parachute without drowning and all kinds of stuff like that.
0: That's a yeah. So not, but I that's a little different deal. Like it's not the perfect perfect training scenario for if that were to ever happen. Hey, I'm floating in the sky type of thing. Like that would be a first time deal. Like you, you. you oh know. yeah,
1: yeah. Okay. Every every time a uh, well, I guess the first time any military pilot has ejected, that's their first time actually hanging in the air.
0: I think of that Ricky Bobby thing where he's like, this is not good. I'm in the air right now. But I guess at that point you're safe, so it's not a perfect comparison. Um, well, you're kind of, safe
1: if you're over the U.S.
0: Yeah, okay. Fair enough. So what, uh, So I guess kind of a big picture as we wrap up here, you guys, you mentioned there's seven of you pilots. Uh, you mentioned kind of outlined the amount of, like, everyone that makes you guys go. I know it's, like, it's a lot of people, but it also seems like it could be a fairly tight-knit group. I'm trying to think how to ask this. I know you like your job. Obviously it's a career choice you made and it's something that you enjoy. What is like the biggest thrill of your job? Like why, why do you like what you do every day? Because it's not, you know, punching numbers behind a desk or accounting. This is very high tech stuff. This is very cool. It's obviously risk to it. I imagine there's a thrill factor, but like when you're going through a daily run or whatever, why, what makes you love your job?
1: Oh, I mean, there, there are a lot of flights that are just a lot of fun. I mean, the, the low-level flying through the Cascade Mountains is incredible. Um, I mean, the BFM flights where you're just going up and dogfighting someone else, you know, looking over your shoulder, max AB, shooting missiles, those are a lot of fun. Um, but the flights that I think had the highest job satisfaction were the extremely difficult ones where you were presented a tough problem to solve. You came up with a good mission plan. Uh, You led the flight well. You were looking out for everybody else, making sure your wingman wasn't out in the middle of nowhere, doing nothing, making sure the strikers were in the right place. Um, You come back from that after executing a mission really well. And in the debrief, you get to show everyone how well you did it. Um, Those are really really rewarding flights and they're extremely tough to come by i mean every flight there are mistakes to be made um there's always something to debrief you know even even if you think you had a perfect flight when you come back there's going to be oh you could have done this better you could have done that better and sometimes there are way bigger things where someone will just straight up your instructor will straight up tell you hey man this was bad like you need to fix this you did poorly in this area Um, but the flights when you come back and you did well. You flew well. You debriefed it well, and your instructor pats you on the back and gives you a "that boy." Like you won the war today. I think those flights are probably the highest, the highest job satisfaction.
0: So you're in a way you're constantly seeking approval. Like, and it's not <laughs> even just like approval of someone. Yeah. But actually, that's not the right way to do it. I actually, I'll use like a golf analogy. You shoot like. You know, 68 one day, and, like, if you're a good golfer, it's like, okay, that's a good round, but I probably left one or two out there. How do I do that? How do I shoot 68 five out of ten times when I go out as opposed to just having it once? Like, it's more just – it's not seeking approval. It's perfecting your craft. Like, in in some ways, when you do it really well, you're kind of like, hell, yeah, I did it. Is that kind of more what it's like just being better at what you do every day? It's almost like an athlete in some ways.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you went out and you shot a 68, but you lift a one-foot putt, you're not thinking about all the great drives or the awesome chips or that sand shot you had on number seven. You're thinking about the one foot putt that you lift and you could have had, you know, a 67. So it is kind of like that where you go out and you have an awesome flight, but boys, there's always something extra. You know, no debrief is you had a perfect flight. It's this went really well. This went really well. This went really well. And just touch this up a little bit next time. Um, so, and even a debrief where there's just a couple things to work on. Those are, those are great flights. I mean, it's especially down uh, how I was talking about earlier, flying down in Fallon. That's where all the weapons schools are. That's where the serious training happens. So to have a good flight down there and to do well in one of those flights is a really awesome feeling. And I'm still, even though I've been in my squadron for a year and a half, I'm relatively junior to a lot of the pilots that we're going to be flying with. They have a lot more experience. They've seen a lot more situations arise and handled it. Um, so they have a lot to offer. Um, but Going down there and leading a flight and doing really well is just a great feeling.
0: On the scale, look, I'm not I'm <laughs> this is always so corny because it, it cracked me up. Like I'm talking to a couple like actual military people I know where the people do like the thank you for your service thing. It's kind of an awkward deal. Like you don't hate it, but like it's it's very like corny. But on that for like in a more realistic sense than that, like how much uh, how much pride do you take in the fact that you are like a part of something bigger and doing something very cool to where if something bad were to happen, you were among the frontline people, you know, either designed to stop it or designed to be a part of the team that went and made sure that never happened, if that makes any sense. Do you think about that at all, Ever?
1: Um, I think it's something that it's pretty easy for a lot of us uh that do this to lose sight of. Um, I mean, I, I would say I know all the pilots and all the backseaters and all the sailors in my squadron pretty well. Um, I don't think anyone goes home and when they open up the door, they walk into their house just thinking, Oh baby, (laughs) from the fence, that's me.
0: (laughs) Right. Right.
1: America calls, that's me, baby. Uh, Maybe, maybe there are, maybe I don't know that well. Um, but the one thing that a lot of people do, uh, take pretty serious and take pretty seriously and take a lot of pride in is being part of part of the team. And, you know, when you join the squadron, you're no longer, you know, just yourself, you're part of, you know, 22 air crew and 180 sailors behind you that are backing you up and making sure your jets can go fly. So I think being a part of the team, like you were talking about and a part of something bigger than yourself. um, And even, you know, when you're actually out on deployment and you're missing Christmas, you're missing Thanksgiving, you're missing birthdays, anniversaries for all the older guys, kids' birthdays, you know, soccer games. Maybe Timmy wins a soccer championship and you weren't there to see it. I think those are the, probably the, the moments where people are able to reflect on what they're doing and why they're doing it and why they saw the importance of going to do this job in exchange for those types of moments. Um, but when you're back at home, uh, it's mostly just about being a part of the team. And then when you're actually on deployment doing the job, that's probably when it hits home a little bit more about why you're doing what you're doing. But I mean, that's still, I still haven't gotten on our first deployment. I was about um, so to ask I, that,
0: but that's, is that coming? Is that possible? And that would, would that consist of you being out somewhere on an aircraft carrier on a military base? Like what would that consist of for you?
1: Yeah. So next summer, uh, my squadron's deploying off the East coast on the uh, George W. Bush CBN 77. Um, so we'll be headed out, uh, not quite sure where yet, um, somewhere out in this awesome, great planet that we have. Um, but we'll be out from late next summer until early 2023. Um, I think it's scheduled, I think it's scheduled for a seven or eight month cruise. Um, so yeah, just be out there going wherever, uh, Congress and the president and our enemies decide it's the best place for us to be.
0: That's uh, and that's something I know, like that you mentioned, you haven't, like you haven't had to do yet is, I, I imagine part of it is exciting, but obviously, you know, you guys live in Washington now, like you've made kind of a home base there. It seems like you enjoy it there. I've been to Seattle-ish area once. It's a beautiful part of the country. Is, yeah. when, is, when will reality set in with that? Like I know part of it, I imagine is exciting, but like there is like a homesickness aspect to it. Do you, when do you think that will set in?
1: I mean, I think it'll probably set in kind of like I was talking about that first carrier landing. You've been thinking about it for six months, but then you find yourself right there and you're actually doing it. I think it'll be when we're standing on the ship and we're pulling away and you lose sight of land and it's gone. You're on the uh, you're on the ocean, you're on deployment, you're headed out. I think it'll probably be a moment like that because, you know, Wesley will be um, back up here in Washington. I'll be, so we'll travel to the East coast and then we'll be on the East coast for about two or three days. Um, and then actually pull out of port. So even though I'm, I'll leave home and then three days later actually leave, I think over those three days, it'll still be kind of weird. Like I'm gone, but I still have my phone. I can, I can call my mom or dad right now if I wanted to, um, FaceTime my sister, whatever you want. You're still in the real world. I think it'll be that moment where you get on the, on the boat for the last time, and the boat pulls away. That it actually hits you. Like, all right, this is deployment, and we're we're doing what like I was talking about. We're going to Virginia next month. That's a a workup exercise in preparation for deployment. After that, we're going back down to Fallon that I was talking about for about a month and a half. That's another preparation uh, big exercise called Airwing Fallon. Following that, we'll go back to the boat for another month, still training, just getting ready. And after that final uh, exercise, then we'll actually Go back to Virginia, get on the boat for deployment. So, I've been thinking about it a lot already. I'm going to spend the next couple months thinking about it some more, and then uh, here come late summer. It'll uh, it'll actually happen.
0: So, when you're on deployment, there's no phone, no nothing.
1: Uh, I mean, you can have your phone; it's just no service. Like,
0: uh, yeah, I didn't think about that. Uh, they're not AT and T is not great in like you know West Asia.
1: Yeah, not super big carrier over there. I need to get uh, I need to T-Spire to hook me up with some sort of sat phone. I
0: was about to say, we can make that happen. I don't know what T-Spire's range is, but, you know, I heard they're big in Indonesia. I don't really know. We'll have to double-check that. <laughs>
1: it's an emerging market. We'll have to run by their <laughs> office and see what's up.
0: So there's an opportunity there. That is for sure. We can get uh, old Mina on the phone and see what we can do about that.
1: All right, call, call wait up, see what he's got.
0: <laughs> so, as we kind of wrap up here, what do you think is the hardest part of your
1: job? Oh You know with the amount of with the amount of information that's out there and the amount of information you need to not just the rote memorization of you know this sort of missile goes with this sort of radar, it's this system, it has this range, all that type of information for. A myriad of SAMs. I mean, every country, some of them share, some of them have built their own, all that type of information along with our tactics. How, how are you going to react to this one? How are you going to react to that one? How are you going to react to this? Down to just the basics of flying the plane, all those types of systems. I think it's just the maintenance of knowledge that, you know, I've, last time I was in the squadron was December 16th because uh, I've been on leave for Christmas and everything. Um, so when I go back, I'm going to have to go Right back, you know, if I thought studying was done at Ole Miss, wrong. I study more out here than I did at Ole Miss, which wow. I realize isn't saying a whole lot.
0: Well, it depends on – I mean, you were engineering. You weren't, like, <laughs> test bank you like I was, where it's like, who's got the chain email where I can get, you know, hopefully the test bank's the same as the test. But it is a lot – as you mentioned, it's a lot more processing information and studying than, you know, you could ever <laughs> imagine in a college setting. Is it What? You're saying it's a lot more processing and learning information than you would have ever, like, you know, been prepared for in any sort of co- collegiate setting.
1: Yeah, and, I mean, there are the, the tough sides uh, elsewhere. I mean, just being a good BFM fighter, that takes time. It takes practice. It takes studying so you know exactly what to do. Being, there are a lot of different things that you can be good at, um, but basically all of them take a lot of time spent Studying the material, understanding the material, asking questions about it. We have every squadron has a training officer who's an expert who's been to the weapons school and knows all about this stuff. So I think just putting in the time, uh, it's not so much putting in the time to initially learn it, it's continuing to get in the books and read so that that knowledge stays with you, which you have to refresh it every so often or it just goes away.
0: Oh, one question I forgot that I should have gotten to before I asked you that what is uh what is aircraft carrier life like like obviously you're going to spend like a shit ton of time on there what's what's like out devs you sleep somewhere like could, you're not going to be working twenty four seven I don't imagine like what's it like on there
1: well, up to this point, I've only spent about a week uh in a row on the carrier that was over our flight deck cert um, or maybe over rag cq. I'd say five days is probably the longest stretch I've been on a carrier without coming off. So I don't know a whole ton about the deployment life, um, but the guys who were on our last deployment, I mean, every night. So you you have your little stateroom, which you share with between three and potentially seven other guys. There's four-man rooms all the way up to eight-man rooms. Um, so that's your bedroom, which you – one bed worth of privacy because you have one little rack that has a curtain. Um, So you have very little personal space, but your squadron has what's called a ready room where there's a seat for every pilot in EWO. There's a desk with whoever the squadron duty officer of the day is sitting back there, keeping track of the flight schedule, playing some music, playing movies on the TVs we've gotten there. Um, So that ready room is really, it's your office, your living room. It's where you hang out with your friends. It's where you do work. Um, You spend a lot of time in that ready room. So decorating it, making it your home is definitely super important. Um, every night, someone, uh, at least on our last deployment, what they said they did was uh, someone would pick a movie for Monday night, and that would be the theme that someone had to stick with, and each day, someone would pick a different movie, but they had to stick with the theme from Monday night. Gotcha. Um, so every night it's called a roll em, like seven or eight o'clock at night or so, just play a movie in the ready room. Um, and other than that, I mean, you're flying a lot. Uh, I'm an LSO. So that's one out of every four days. You're on the back of the platform waving uh, aircraft in, making sure that they're safe. You still have your ground job, whatever your, you know, collateral duty is, you're still doing that. So I think it's a, probably a mixed balance between feeling like you're super busy and you have so much to do, and then every other day feeling like you have so much free time, you're so bored, you don't have to do it yourself.
0: What, uh, will you ever be on land during all that? Will you ever get to get off and go anywhere, or will you be on an aircraft carrier from the, to- the entire time of deployment?
1: Uh, you should. So there is something like port calls, um, whenever the ship pulls up to a port. Those have been changing a lot with COVID. Um, so it used to be the ship pulls up to a city and you could go out, you know, maybe there for four or five days, maybe go out to explore the city, you know, have a couple of cold ones with your friends because you definitely don't have any of those on the boat. Hmm. Um, just see, you know, whatever city it may be, whether it's in the Mediterranean or uh, Dubai or something like that, um, all over the place. Uh, Singapore, I think, is a pretty popular one. Um, but with COVID, they made this little base called Dukum. I think it had been there for a while. I don't really know a whole lot about Dukeham, uh, but it was basically just a pier side where they had, you know, there's a hotel like 30 minutes away or something. And it's a tiny crappy little town. And uh, they were pulling there like every time one ship uh, didn't get port calls. They just, every 45 days they would have a beer day and they would bring 22,000 beers onto the boat and everybody got two beers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that, that, don't get stuck on one of those. That sounds tough. Um, yeah. The, uh, last serious thing I have for you. Then I got a couple of really awesome questions to close out that I've spent hours preparing for. <laughs> what is the, uh, what is the, what is your end goal in this? Like everyone that departs on a career path has some sort of end goal. Like, I mean, I'm kind of in limbo now. Like I work in marketing full time, but still do whatever this is part time. Like, Mine's changed a lot. Like I'd still, I've still have goals in what I want to do as both the writer and the podcaster or whatever. But yeah. like, how do you view the future? What do you want to do? Is there an end goal or is it just one of those? I would like to be a better version of what I am every day. How do you view the future?
1: Um, well you just said a better version of myself every day. That's kind of what I've been focusing on right now. I mean, my, uh, so when you get your wings, you are signing an eight year commitment to be in the Navy. So I'm only at like two and a half of that. Okay. right now so i still have uh you know five and a half years probably closer to six when you put everything through the wash uh that i'm going to be in the navy um so right now just trying to do the best i can on this assignment so that i can succeed in deployment whatever succeed might mean by that point whether it's actually doing well in the hot war that started or just Flying safe and tactically around the boat, and being a good flight lead, um, whatever that may be on deployment. Just working to be the best version of myself for that event. Um, following that, I'll be getting another assignment, uh, which could be, you know, the weapons school down in Fallon. It could be back to uh, a training squadron in Pensacola, teaching young guys who were like me, um, you know, just five or six years before, how to fly the jet. Could be back in Meridian, which wouldn't be too bad. Uh, going to Ole Miss baseball games—certainly not a bad way to spend the weekend. Um, so that'll be my next assignment, and then I'll get at least one more after that. Which there's no telling um, what it could be at that point. Okay. Uh, so another six years in the Navy. If they give me another good assignment after that, I'll stay as long as they keep giving me awesome assignments. But probably looking at a FedEx or some sort of commercial air after the Navy unless uh, some other really awesome opportunity presents itself. You know, all those, you know, there's private military contractors that were on the ground doing work. Right. Those guys have pilots too. Um, so maybe if that sort of opportunity is available, I think that'd be really cool. Um, but FedEx does sound like a very nice stable life. Just flying the packages around being home four days a week.
0: Absolutely. And, uh, that would be, uh, that would be pretty cool. I was about to say FedEx's slogan, but I forgot it. I was about to blurt out what can Brown do for you, but I think that's the other one. Does uh UPS have planes? Would that be an option? Yeah, they do. Okay.
1: Um, so yeah, UPS and FedEx. Um, I think FedEx would be nice cause I'd have a good chance of being based in Memphis, being close to Oxford. Yeah. Good call. Uh, there. But UPS, uh, I'm sure they have bases all over the place. I mean, I've been to Salt Lake city a couple of times recently and that is an awesome place. Really? So getting based in Salt Lake City wouldn't be too bad.
0: Um, uh, all right, here's some awesome ones I got for you. Do you ever get on a commercial aircraft and kind of look at the guy and just be like, hey, what's up? Like if the adults need to intervene, like you can come back here and tap seat, you know, 34, we'll have you covered.
1: Uh, maybe I should start doing that. I've always been waiting for that day where, you know, the plane rattles a little bit and then you hear the flight attendant, are there any super awesome military pilots in the back? Can you press your call button? I'm I'm waiting for that day, Rippy. You just wait. I'm gonna be a well, hero. I'm gonna be on the news.
0: Can you start negging them on the way off? the? I love pilots, airline, they like they it's a great job, but like could you know, could you walk off the plane and just be like a little bumpy there, Chief?
1: Yeah. Oh, nice landing. <laughs> <laughs> just keep the uh, back right.
0: pocket. I just just, just the airline pilot. Let him know, let him know that you're on the big
1: equipment. Yeah, just let him know. Hey. That, that was okay. <laughs>
0: that was fine, but if I ever catch you again on another fight, I expect it to be better. Um,
1: yeah, I'm not paying for that twice.
0: <laughs> here's a uh, here's another one. Can you ever? Could we get you on an Ole Miss flyover?
1: Uh so I have actually looked into that a couple times. I was talking to Paris Buchanan, the uh, yeah assistant athletic director for like fan engagement.
0: I yeah, think. he does like marketing fan engagement. Great dude.
1: Yeah. Um. So I was. Targeting this year's Ole LSU game. Uh, so I I was emailing him about this like last year. Uh, and it turns out, so there's, what I tell you, mountains of paperwork. <laughs> yeah. uh, and we cannot, the Navy comes out with this pre-approved list of flyovers. Um, but you can do one that's not on the list, but the institution has to request it I can't just be like, hey, Ole Miss, guess what? You're getting a flyover deal with it.
0: Yeah. I'm about to come crop dust.
1: Uh, yeah. Uh, so I guess when I come back from deployment, I guess the fall of 2023, if I'm still in my squadron, I would love to come do. And I actually, uh, we did one over the university of Utah and Oregon game this year when Utah just gave them the business. Yeah. Um, so we did a flyover for their game. That was a really cool time. We were down on the field, you know, went up to the box got some awesome food with high society and then down on the field at halftime and it was awesome if I could ever do that for Ole Miss I would be on it in a heartbeat
0: is that cool for you guys when it actually happens because I know you're only over it for a split second but are, are you over it for enough time to process like look at this sick ass venue
1: um not really so when we were doing the flyover um we brought three pilots uh I was flying the turning spare so all I had to do on the ground was start up once the other two pilots who were actually doing the flyover were done I shut down and went right to the game I was there like 1 minute after kickoff oh awesome um, so but a lot of those flyovers I mean you know the flyovers where someone shows up like 10 seconds early and ruins the anthem or yes. it's like 15 seconds late and it's like all oh, these bozos like they couldn't even be here on time <laughs> um so a lot of those flyovers uh it's a lot of work well not not a lot of work it's a fairly simple thing to do but it's just you know high risk high reward if you mess that up you just look like an idiot so so a lot of it is just you're in a holding pattern working your timing and trying to hit that stadium at the exact right time which like i said if you have if you've worked all the timing out it's not difficult you just have a certain point 20 miles away and you fly 250 knots ground speed and you hit it perfectly Um, but there's always you know oh like on the radio the band started 15 seconds late so then you're slowing down, doing all things like that to uh, to hit the timing. So I think by the time you hit the stadium and you know you got your timing done, you're just flashing right over the stadium and you're immediately looking for which way you're turning to head back to the airport. I've, I mean, Scott, he was my buddy who did the one for Salt Lake. He said it was a ton of fun, um, but – You're not so much thinking about how much you want to look down and see the awesome stadium because if you focus on that too much, you might mess up your timing and just look like a gigantic idiot.
0: Yeah, and you probably don't know until after, like, if the dude's singing it like tries to pretend that Simon Cowell and Randy Jackson are in attendance and he wants to stick a note for a little bit longer, that could screw up the whole process too, could it not?
1: Yeah, it definitely could. And that's why they time the, uh, the person, like, in practice. They time, they're like, all right, it's a minute and 20 seconds exactly but then they get nervous and they start singing fast and it's a minute and 12 seconds. Then, you know, there's a long pause and it's like, and okay, here they come now. Finally.
0: That's, uh, we've got to get you on one of those. John Hazlitt, man, I can't appreciate this. I uh, can't tell you how much I appreciate this. What you do is very cool. I appreciate you coming on and explaining it to me. Uh, I know the people listening. Uh, this was awesome stuff. I hope they got smarter from it too, but um, we'll get you on one of those flyovers soon. Safe travels. Thank you for what you're doing. And I really appreciate it. This was awesome
1: stuff, man. Absolutely, dude. I had a blast. It was uh, it was good running into you. Thanks for having me uh, on the podcast, dude. I appreciate it a ton. It's been a good time.
0: Absolutely. Next time you're on Oxford, holler at me, we'll grab a beer or something and uh, uh, I'll ask you more dumb questions about planes.
1: All right. Sounds good, dude.
0: All righty, that was John Hazlitt. Really fun conversation. That didn't necessarily make me want to be a Navy fighter pilot. Not that your boy's capable anyway. I think the military would take one look at me and be like, No, no actually, can can you get this guy out of here? Um, but really impressive, dude. Uh, really cool job. And uh, yeah, sounds like uh, the people in Seattle don't love it when those planes break the speed of sound. But um, that's a that's a that's a fascinating thing to think about. Imagine flying through the air and being I'm going faster than sound. That's uh, that's something I've thought about a lot since that interview. So appreciate his time. Cool, dude. We knew each other in college. He was, like I mentioned in the interview, a couple years older than me. Ran into him at a bar and was just like, let's do this on a podcast. So hope you guys enjoyed it. I know it was a little different. We'll get back to some football, basketball stuff on Friday and back to some regularly scheduled podcast programming starting next week as well. Just been a weird couple of weeks catching up with uh, the old day job since New Orleans and uh, having a couple of content ideas fall through but uh appreciate you guys listening good stuff on the way we'll have picks on friday probably some basketball updates and uh, who knows maybe another guest in between i hope you guys are having a great week thank you for making us a part of your day as always and we will catch you on friday